This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Support Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is episode 218 of the program. I hope you guys all had a fantastic week. Today is Friday, November 15th, and before we get started, I want to take some time to thank all of our newest Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members, all of which signed up for the very first time to support us this week, and that includes Aaron Bowes, Charles Washington, D. Garcia, Don Bates, Jack, Jasmine Mann, Jolyn McCulley, Mary Dugan, Ray Passage, and Victor Stanton. So thank you so much to all of these kind souls. If you'd also like to support the show and join the independent progressive media revolution, you can do so by doing a number of things. You can either go to humanistreport.com slash support, patreon.com slash humanistreport, or underneath any one of our YouTube videos, you can click join. So this week on the program, we'll talk about Bernie's warning to Bloomberg. I'll give you an update on Shama Suwan's election in Seattle. Trump Jr. gets booed by MAGA chuds. We'll talk about the U.S.-backed military coup in Bolivia, how Ilhan Omar was 100% right about Stephen Miller, the number of migrant children being detained by Donald Trump's administration, Joe Biden's lies about Medicare for All, what happened when a billionaire tried to donate to Bernie Sanders. And we'll talk about the right-wingers who love all billionaires, including liberal ones. And finally, we closed the week by talking to 2020 congressional candidate Heidi Sloan, who's running to represent the 25th Congressional District of Texas. So that's what we've got on the agenda for this week's episode, along with a couple of additional segments. Hopefully you guys will enjoy the program, so let's go ahead and waste no time. Let's dive right in. So if this wasn't already clear to everyone, let me make it clear now. The 2020 election cycle is about us versus the elites, the millionaires and billionaires versus the working class. They have been waging a decades-long, multi-decades-long class warfare on the working class where they lobby the government and buy off politicians to shift the tax burden away from them and onto you and I. They are pushing elected officials to make sure that policy outcomes benefit them and not us. And they're making sure that anyone who's running in any election anywhere across the country is a puppet, is bankrolled by them, because they need to make sure that even if they have everything already, they get even more. So they're so greedy that after having so much wealth, it's not enough. They want more and they will never be satisfied. Their thirst for, you know, wealth and power, it will never be quenched. And they're getting so frustrated now with the prospect of a Bernie Sanders presidency that rather than just having a puppet or a proxy represent them in government, now they're just choosing to rise up and run directly. So, I mean, we have Donald Trump, a billionaire, as president. We have another billionaire running, Tom Steyer. And now a third billionaire wants to enter the race, Michael Bloomberg. Now, as Sidney Ember of the New York Times writes, Mr. Bloomberg on Friday took the first step toward a candidacy 
filing paperwork to qualify for the ballot in Alabama. His looming entry into the race has underscored its fluidity while presenting the threat of a centrist competitor to former Vice President Joseph R. Biden Jr. Mr. Bloomberg's early moves and his suggestion that he would follow the unconventional campaign strategy of skipping all four traditional early state contests and instead stake his candidacy on delegate-rich primary states like California and Texas has supplied fresh fodder for candidates like Mr. Sanders and Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, who are both campaigning on anti-elitist progressive messages. Earlier in the day on Saturday at a climate change forum in Des Moines, Mr. Sanders directed a more glancing blow at Mr. Bloomberg, saying the country needed a dynamic democracy, a democracy where all of us play a role in shaping public policy, not some billionaire who decides that he wants to run for president of the United States because he's a billionaire. Mr. Sanders also took a shot at Mr. Biden, who recently said he would be willing to accept support from a super PAC. His campaign, Mr. Sanders said, had no such financial vehicle. So essentially what billionaires are now doing is they're cutting out the middlemen and middlewomen, right? Rather than just buying off a puppet and having themselves be represented through a proxy, now they're choosing to just run directly themselves because they just don't have enough, according to them. Now, when you look at political science studies, there's a 2014 Princeton University study by Drs. Gillens and Page that found that when it comes to policy outcomes, elites and, you know, special interests, they get everything. But normal, non-elite citizens, working class Americans, we have a statistically insignificant impact on policy outcomes. But guess what? They are still not satisfied with everything that they have, all the wealth and power that they've accumulated. So they want more. And because of the prospect of a Bernie Sanders presidency scares them so much, well, now what they're trying to do is make sure that they undermine what the working class wants. And this isn't just Michael Bloomberg. There is real class solidarity among elites. Because as Vox journalist Jason Del Rey tweeted out, in a private phone call earlier this year, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos asked Mike Bloomberg if he'd consider running for president. To which Bernie Sanders responded saying, ha 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 ha, that's some real class solidarity. I'm impressed by that grassroots movement. Our campaign, on the other hand, is a real movement by and for the working class. We are going to take on the billionaire class and we are going to defeat them. Now, a few days prior to the news that Michael Bloomberg would be running, Bernie Sanders tweeted, the billionaire class is scared and they should be scared. Now, additionally, at a rally in Iowa with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders had a stern warning from Michael Bloomberg. Take a look. The campaign is going to end a corrupt political system dominated by billionaires and wealthy campaign contributors. Our campaign is going to end the grotesque level of income and wealth inequality which exists in America today. So tonight we say to Michael Bloomberg and other billionaires, sorry, you ain't gonna buy this election. You're not going to get elected president by avoiding Iowa, by avoiding New Hampshire, 
South Carolina and Nevada, you're not going to buy this election by spending hundreds of millions of dollars on media in California. Those days are gone. That was fantastic. You are not going to buy this election. You can try, and they certainly will try. But what matters is that we go even harder for Bernie Sanders. We fight even more. We donate even more. Because moneyed interests, they're not just going to, you know, roll over and accept a Bernie Sanders nomination. If he becomes the nomination, I need you to realize what we are going to witness is going to be so remarkable. So many people who are centrist are suddenly going to go full MAGA. They're going to become chuds also they can protect their wealth and power. That's what we are going to see. That's exactly what's going to happen. So the establishment is going to fight. They're going to back Donald Trump because even though the establishment isn't necessarily too happy with Donald Trump, he's doing their bidding. So at the end of the day, what we're going to see is elites in this country coalesce around Donald Trump if Bernie Sanders is the nominee and they will fight him tooth and nail. So even though I believe that Bernie Sanders is infinite, infinitely more electable than anyone else running in 2020, this is not going to be an easy fight because they're not just going to let us have this victory and throw their hands up in the air and say, well, you know what? It was a hard fought battle. We tried our best, but we lost. That's not going to happen. I promise you that is not going to happen. Capitalism is going to put up the hardest fight ever and exhaust all of its resources until it has none left. So if you want this victory, if you want Bernie Sanders to become president, you have to put in the time. You have to dedicate at least some time per week to phone bake for him to get the word out because we can win if we have enough people, right? We have to have grassroots and people power on the ground organizing constantly because this will be a battle unlike any other battle before, politi politically speaking. So we've got to fight and um, we got to send a message that the billionaire class, unlike what has previously been the case, they're not going to be able to do what they've been able to accomplish before. They're not going to be able to keep buying elections. 2020 is not for sale. This is our election. And anyone like Michael Bloomberg or Tom Steyer or Donald Trump or Jeff Bezos who thinks that they're going to be able to keep having it all and hoarding wealth, we have to send them a message that those days are done and we're going to take from them what they stole from us. Wealth. We just got to fight for it. I can't stress that enough. This is going to be a very, very tough battle. So if you want it, work for it. Bolivia's first indigenous president, Evo Morales, who is an incredibly successful and popular left-wing socialist president, became the latest leader in Latin America to fall victim to a military coup backed by, you guessed it, the United States government. Now, you wouldn't necessarily know that that was the case if you only tuned into mainstream media who isn't giving people the full story. For example, this headline from the New York Times reads, Bolivian leader Evo Morales steps down. The CNN headline reads, Bolivian president Evo Morales steps down following accusations of election fraud. This video from CBS News says, Bolivian president Evo Morales resigns after election fraud and protests. This headline from Time Magazine reads, Bolivian president Evo Morales announces resignation amid protests. 
So based on these headlines, you'd assume that an unpopular president who was fraudulently elected is simply resigning due to public pressure. But that's not the case. What this is, is a military coup. It's a military coup by far-right opposition to Morales, who was emboldened by the U.S. government. Now, as Jake Johnson of Common Dreams reports, Bolivia's socialist president Evo Morales was forced to resign Sunday under threat from the nation's military, police forces, and violent right-wing protesters who have burned and ransacked the homes of members of Morales' party, assaulted supporters of the president, and kidnapped a Bolivian mayor. So let's be crystal clear and call this what it is. This is a military coup. Now, the reason why we are seeing a coup happen in Bolivia is largely due to the far right, as I alluded to, being emboldened by the United States government. Now, how they were emboldened is explained to you in this Nation article by Mark Weisbrot, who explains, on October 20th, Bolivians went to the polls to choose their president and Congress. Evo Morales, the country's first indigenous president in a country with the largest proportion of indigenous people in Latin America, was on the ballot for re-election. His main opponent, former President Carlos Mesa, is vastly preferred by the Trump administration. Since Morales was elected in 2005, the U.S. government has been hostile and Bolivia has not had ambassadorial relations with the United States since 2009. Morales is one of the last remaining members of a cohort of independent left presidents who have been opposed and in some cases removed with the help of the United States. When the official tally was done, Morales had 47.1% of the vote, with 36.5% for Mesa in second place. This meant that Morales had won the presidency without going to a runoff because the rules allow for a first round win for a candidate that gets at least 40% of the vote at a 10 point margin over the closest competitor. The opposition cried foul long before the votes were counted. Mesa had already indicated that he would not accept the decision of the electoral authorities if Morales were to win. What is more surprising and disturbing was the press statement from the OAS the day after the election. It expressed, quote, deep concern and surprise at the drastic and hard to explain change in the trend of the preliminary results after the closing of the polls, but it did not present any evidence for its questioning of the election results. Hours before the OAS press statement and even longer before the votes were counted, Senator Marco Rubio stated falsely, quote, in Bolivia, all credible indications are Evo Morales failed to secure necessary margin to avoid second round in presidential election. He also alleged without evidence that there was some concern he will tamper with the results or process to avoid this. Trump administration officials followed with similar statements. The potentially violence-promoting claims of the OAS, which echo those of Rubio in the Trump administration, have driven much of the media's coverage and serve as an anchor for those who want to discredit the election. Now, the Organization of American States, the OAS, this is a multilateral organization who is ostensibly impartial. So whenever they say something, whenever they declare the results of any given country's election as legitimate or illegitimate, the media just tends to accept what they say, just accept their word, because, you know, this isn't just the United States who is issuing this declaration. They view them as a neutral arbiter, and most of the time, they're okay, although not always. They have undermined elections, as you're going to see. Now, the problem with the OAS is that the United States government 
has a disproportionate level of influence. Here's one example. In the 2000 national election in Haiti, the OAS at first decided that it was a great success for the Haitian population, which turned out in large and orderly numbers to choose both their local and national government. But the OAS later changed its position as Washington sought to destabilize and topple the government there. So this organization does the bidding of what the U.S. government wants oftentimes because the U.S. government has, again, a large amount of influence, a large amount of sway within this organization. Now, what makes this especially suspicious is what they're saying is fraudulent with regard to the Morales election. For those who bothered to look at the data, it was clear that the increase in the share of Morales votes in later returns was simply a result of geography. In other words, Morales support is much stronger among rural and poorer populations whose votes came in later. Such a geographically driven change in vote margins is not that uncommon in elections, as anyone who has watched election returns on television in the United States knows. And this change wasn't even that big of a shift. But that's really what they're basing their fraud claims on. And we just had an election in Seattle where there was a city council race where Shama Sawan, who's a socialist, was behind. And then all of a sudden she caught up and ended up winning because the mail-in ballots came in and she was heavily favored among those people who were mailing in their ballots. So, I mean, this really is nothing new. If you are a neutral observer and you see this then there's a perfectly reasonable and rational ex explanation for it. And the fact that this is what they're viewing as fraudulent or calling it to question the legitimacy of shows that something fishy is going on here, right? This stinks. Something's not right. Now, the problem is that once a narrative takes hold, it's really difficult to undo it. So the narrative became election fraudulent. The media ran with that. The right wing, the far right in Bolivia was emboldened. And then the rest was history. Morales was ousted once the military asked him to resign. And they only asked him out of courtesy because if he didn't agree to resign, they would have removed him forcefully. Now, in an interview with Democracy Now!, Mark Weisbrot explained how the media really fueled the flames of regime change by not being diligent enough. And I think it's really terrible the way it's been uh, presented because from the beginning, you had that OAS uh, press release the day after the election, which hinted or implied, actually, very strongly that there was something wrong with the vote count. And they never presented any evidence at all. They didn't present it in that release. They didn't present it in their next release. They didn't present it in their preliminary report. And there's really nothing in this uh, latest uh, so-called preliminary audit that shows that there was any fraud in this election, but it was repeated over and over again uh, in all the media. And so it, it became kind of true. And, you know, if you look at the media, you don't see anybody, you don't see any experts, for example, uh, saying that there was something wrong with the vote count. It's really just that OAS observation mission, which was under a lot of pressure, of course, from uh, Senator Rubio and uh, the Trump administration uh, to do this because they wanted, they've wanted for some time to get rid of this government. In terms of the Trump administration, you can look at uh, tweets and statements from uh, Marco Rubio right uh, before the votes were even counted, uh, saying that there was going to be fraud and, uh, you know, making it clear that they didn't want this uh, government to be there. And so, yeah, I think that, I mean, it's very obvious that they supported this group. And it's very obvious that they uh, pressured uh, the OAS 
uh, where, you know, the United States supplies 60 percent of the budget. And, you know, this is the problem. The media treats this uh, OAS as though it's really an independent arbiter here. And they do have electoral missions. And most of the time uh, they're clean, but they are not always. And, uh, you know, in, in Haiti in 2011, for example, they reversed the results of a first round uh, presidential election without any statistical test recount or any reason. It was completely political. And in 2000, uh, they reversed their position, their report on the election when the United States, as you know, and you've reported on this show, uh, wanted to cut off all international aid to Haiti and uh, spent four years preparing for the coup of uh, 2004. So uh, the OAS played a major role in that by changing their report on the uh, election in Haiti. And so I think uh, this is this is a kind of a classic uh, military coup. Uh, supported by the United States. So, Mark Weisbrot, you have the CIA involvement in coups in Bolivia in 1952, in 1964, 1970, 1980. Would you add 2019 to that list? I would add it to the list. I mean, we don't have the hard evidence of what they did. You know, it's not like 2009 in Honduras, where Hillary Clinton wrote in her memoirs that she uh, worked uh, in the OAS, too. Uh, to uh, prevent the elected uh, president, uh, who you've had on this show, uh, from coming back to the country and to the presidency. But I, I think we'll probably find out more later. But it's it's just it is it is very obvious um, that they supported this coup. So, I mean, there you have it. If you are familiar with the United States's history, well, this isn't surprising. Like, this is just another chapter and a very long story of the U.S. doing what we want in a region of the world that wants autonomy, right? We don't like the results of their elections, so what do we do? Well, our government acts to change it by undermining the legitimacy and support of said legitimately elected government. And we have installed brutal dictators before. Allende was elected in Chile, and who did we put in place? We backed Augusto Pinochet who was an absolute monster. He was a totalitarian leader who created a police state. This was our doing. So we keep doing this over and over again. We keep lobbying for regime change in Latin America. And then once we undermine these regimes, then we claim that, you know, socialism and these socialist regimes, they don't work. But the thing about Evo Morales is he's been really successful at driving down poverty in Bolivia and driving up Bolivia's GDP. This is someone who is the real deal. So he talked about how he was disappointed in Obama because he thought that Obama was the change candidate. I'm paraphrasing, of course. And he even endorsed Bernie Sanders for president, saying, We congratulate Brother Bernie Sanders, who, according to the press, moves forward the U.S. presidential nomination. We are confident this progressive leader will have a strong support from the people of the U.S. Democratic revolutions are built upon democratic elections. Now, on top of that, he challenged the United States and their hegemony in a very direct way to Donald Trump's face. The United States could not care less about human rights nor justice. If this were the case, it would have signed the international conventions and treaties for the protection of human rights. It would not have threatened the investigation mechanisms of the International Criminal Court, nor would it promote the use of torture. 
nor would it have walked away from the Human Rights Council, and nor would it have separated migrant children from their families, nor put them in cages. Few Latin American leaders have done that because they're probably afraid of the repercussions. If you challenge the United States, you are challenging a behemoth who could very easily undermine you and potentially overthrow you. So this is absolutely um, just... I want to say that it's shocking, but this really isn't surprising. This is what the United States have been do has been doing. Look at this tweet from Zach Carter, who he really goes through the list of how many times the United States has backed a military coup in Latin America. And we've done this again and again and again. And this is just what we've come to expect as the norm in the United States. We back coups whenever there is a president in place that we don't like. This is what we do. It's unacceptable. Now, this is someone who is a socialist who's actually been successful at ameliorating poverty, at making sure that he puts the interests of his country first and he's not kowtowing to the United States as many Latin American leaders feel inclined to do. Now, I want to share the reaction from some political leaders in the United States and abroad because I think that they have some really useful and important insight. Bernie Sanders tweeted, I am very concerned about what appears to be a coup in Bolivia, where the military, after weeks of political unrest, intervened to remove President Evo Morales. The U.S. must call for an end to violence and support Bolivia's democratic institutions. Ilhan Omar tweets, There's a word for the president of a country being pushed out by the military. It's called a coup. We must unequivocally oppose political violence in Bolivia. Bolivians deserve free and fair elections. Labour leader in the UK, Jeremy Corbyn, tweeted to see Evo Morales, who along with a powerful movement has brought so much social progress forced from office by the military, is appalling. I condemn this coup against the Bolivian people and stand with them for democracy, social justice, and independence. So when we talk about this, let's be very clear. This is a military coup and we have to educate people since the mainstream media in the United States isn't doing their job. If they knew that this was another attempt at regime change by the United States government, they probably wouldn't be too happy about that. So what the media does is they kind of reframe the situation, they code it, they hide things that they don't necessarily want you to see. And maybe this isn't even deliberate. Maybe this is something that they're just doing unwittingly. But we have to be clear and speak out. This is a military coup. This is an attempt at regime change, successfully so thus far. And it's unacceptable. Anyone who cares about ending regime change wars, ending U.S.-backed military coups, has got to condemn this. Because this is something that cannot keep happening. We say we believe in democracy. We say that we believe in, you know, the freedom to choose your elected leaders. So we have to actually respect that for once. And allow the people of Bolivia to um, make their own decision. We saw the same thing happen in Venezuela right? Where you had a far-right opposition challenge the left-wing government. Now, what the right-wing individuals in these countries know is that if they truly don't like a left-wing leader, all they have to do is lobby the U.S. government to get involved and they can have the U.S. government take out their political opponents for them. So we have to be very, very careful here when we talk about this. We have to make sure that we're clear and we don't mince words. This is a U.S.-backed coup. We believe in self-determination for the people of Bolivia, and anyone who's not speaking out against this needs to do so fast, because this is completely unacceptable. 
So we're going to actually do something a little bit different today. We are going to talk about something positive. I'm going to share some good news with you because as you all know, last week on the program, we talked about the Seattle City Council race occurring in District 3, where Amazon tried to defeat socialist Shama Sawant by pouring more than $1.4 million into that small race. Now, at the time when I talked about that, it seemed as if she was defeated and the corporatist was going to pull through. Although, once the mail-in ballots came in, well, it turns out, Shama pulled ahead and she ended up winning. So I just want you to pause and really think about the ramifications of this. Amazon, a large, multi-billion dollar company, poured more than a million dollars into a local election, and they still lost. In normal circumstances, 1.4 million, I mean anything over 100,000, is substantial in a small race. But it just really goes to show you that what Shama did was remarkable. And this is important because it has implications for the 2020 election and what Bernie Sanders wants to do. Because as I laid out in that video where we talked about the results of this election, was that what Shama is doing essentially is she's replicating what Bernie Sanders says he wants to do, albeit at a local level. So Bernie Sanders says... The policies like Medicare for All, Green New Deal, which will be incredibly difficult to get past, we're going to need grassroots organization, like a people-powered movement, to actually rise up in cities across the country to get this passed. Well, what Shama has been doing is effectively that same thing, but in Seattle. She has more small grassroots donors than anybody else, and she's actually been very effective. She was the leader of the fight for 15, and she got that passed in Seattle. So what she's doing here really matters. And the fact that Amazon, a behemoth like them, couldn't even defeat her. That just demonstrates that this strategy, organizing, this bottom-up approach to politics, this is our ticket to victory. Now, Bernie Sanders tweeted about Shama, saying Jeff Bezos and Amazon spent $1.5 to defeat progressives like Vote Sawan. They should have kept their money. The people of Seattle want leaders who will fight to end corporate greed to make big corporations pay their fair share and for affordable housing. So I love that there's this solidarity. You know, progressives from the national level to the local level understand that we are all in this together. This is a national movement. And every single race matters. Now, on top of that, on top of the Shama Sawant race, there's another race where progressives had a major victory with Chesa Budin, who is running to be district attorney in San Francisco. And as Julia Conley of Common Dreams reports, Chesa Budin, a public defender and the son of parents who were incarcerated when he was a child, won San Francisco's election for district attorney, promised to confront mass incarceration, institutionalized racism, and police violence in the city. In voting for this campaign, Budin told the Washington Post, the residents of San Francisco have demanded radical change and rejected calls to go back to the tough-on-crime era that did not make us safer and destroyed the lives of thousands of San Franciscans. Budin ran against interim district attorney Susie Loftus, who previously served as a police commissioner before stepping into the role just weeks ago and had the support of the California's Democratic Party and several establishment figures. Budin had won the support of Senator Bernie Sanders and other progressives with his pledges to eliminate cash bail, implement restorative justice programs to help end mass incarceration, and introduce community-based initiatives to reduce gun violence. Now, he won, and the establishment was against him, and this is a position that was formerly held by none other than Kamala Harris. 
Now, another really important DA, Larry Krasner, tweeted about this, saying, Americans are more humane and compassionate than institutions created and controlled by the powerful few. Our movement for a truly just system that supports the well-being of all communities has a new technician in Chesa Budin. Congratulations. Bernie Sanders also tweeted about this, saying, Now is the moment to fundamentally transform our racist and broken criminal justice system by ending mass incarceration, the failed war on drugs, and the criminalization of poverty. Congratulations to Chesa Budin on your historic victory. So all around, this is fantastic news, and I want to share a video that his campaign shared where his team found out that he won, and this is just a moment of pure human happiness that is so wholesome that I couldn't not share it with you because their happiness here is absolutely contagious. Take a look. That is so great. So listen, there's more where that came from. If we organize, if we put in the time now, I promise you it will pay off in the future. It's just a matter of us all coming together, understanding that grassroots activists, we are one, right? This is not some disaggregated movement where we're working against each other, where we have different goals. We are all doing what we can to unrig the system and change American culture and institutions permanently, right? To undo the damage that American capitalism has caused. And whether you are a democratic socialist or a social democrat or a capitalist progressive, either way, understand that we are all fighting together. And people on the ground, these organizers who are doing the time, like putting in the effort that I'm not doing, we really have to understand that their contribution is larger than anyone else's. People who oftentimes don't get credit, but they are the ones who are making this possible. And we absolutely should understand and appreciate their contribution because they're fighting for all of us. You know, their victories, you know, these victories of Chesa Budin and Shama Sawant would not be possible without boots on the ground. And we're not talking militarily. We're talking about people knocking on doors, making phone calls, putting in the time to really make sure that we defeat these highly, you know, bankrolled incumbents who are entrenched within the system, who are trying to cling to power desperately. Now, on top of all of this, all of that good news we got came with the release of Lula da Silva, who was a political prisoner in Brazil, who was released and endorsed Senator Bernie Sanders. So all around, we got a lot of really fantastic news as progressives, and this was something that we all needed because oftentimes, you know, the situation and the outlook in American politics, it's so grim that you can't help but be overly cynical, and I'm, I'm definitely, you know, part of that as well. But every once in a while, we have to step back and really just appreciate what we've managed to accomplish, right? We haven't won the war yet, but all of these individual battles, they are incredibly important, and it, it really speaks to the staying power of our movement, right? There was the Occupy movement, where we felt like that really was the start of change in this country, and then that kind of died out. And then there was, you know, Bernie Sanders in 2016, and then he lost. But what we need to understand is that all of these things were a buildup to what's happening now, right? The floodgates are opening and change is coming. And we are the ones who are facilitating that change because we are fighting and we're not giving up. So take the time to appreciate all that 
people on the ground and you have managed to accomplish and understand that change is possible and victory is within our grasp. We just have to fight for it and fight hard and losing once in a while, that may be demoralizing, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the battle is over. We just have to keep trying and things like this will happen. Donald Trump's failed son, Trump Jr. just published a book unironically titled, Triggered, How to Live Thrives on Hate and Wants to Silence Us. And you can see him here with his friend and fellow grifter Dave Rubin reading a book with a similar subject. Now, on the subject of him being silenced, what I find hilarious is that, you know, it's actually the right that wants to silence him because at a recent event with Turning Point USA, he was shouted down by fellow chuds, right-wingers who didn't like what he had to say. Take a look. It's okay, listen. Hey guys, it's still America, it's okay. We're willing to hear them. They're usually not willing to hear us. So I asked a simple question. I think she's triggered, Don. Thank you for advertising the book. We appreciate it. And to show sort of the level of hatred in that media that, that we keep talking about, but it is so important because it's still the filter by which everyone gets their news. It's because people hijack it with nonsense looking to go for some sort of soundbite. You have people spreading nonsense, spreading hate to try to take over that room. No, and it's, that's be the real issue no, it's the room. because you're not making your parents proud by being rude and disruptive and discourteous. We are happy to answer a question. Hundred new women created and owned businesses a day in the United States of America in 2018 alone. Those are the facts. Even The View couldn't dispute that. They said, well, we like the jobs. People have jobs. Name a time where conservatives have disrupted even the furthest leftists on a college campus. Right? It, it doesn't happen that way. We're, we're willing to listen. We're willing to listen. See what I mean? And that's, that is the problem. And the reason oftentimes it doesn't make sense to do the Q&A is not because we're not willing to talk about the questions, because we do. No. It's because people hijack it with nonsense looking to go for some sort of soundbite. You have people spreading nonsense, spreading hate to try to take over that room. No, and that's the real issue no, in the room. because you're not making your parents proud by being rude and disruptive and discourteous. We are happy to answer a question. you're impressing no one here to get a date in person. That was a real sick burn there at the end um, by Kimberly Guilfoyle. <laughs> that, that was such a boomer thing to say because like this is 2019. Everyone is dating online um, on Tinder or whatever, whatever the kids are doing nowadays. Like that's not something that's uncommon or taboo anymore. There's no stigma attached to that. So for her to kind of own the libs or own the conservatives um using that um it was kind of funny and i enjoyed it but look here's the thing the problem with people like trump jr is that he surrounds himself by yes men and yes women and he's never challenged right you are born to someone who is extremely wealthy and you don't ever have to really work hard to be successful you just are born 
and you're successful. So it's very difficult when people penetrate your bubble and tell you that you're not actually as great as your daddy and mommy have been telling you. In fact, you're a piece of shit and you're very average. But like he talks about how the left wants to silence him. That's the cover of his book. And here you see him being shouted down by people on the right namely because they weren't too happy that Trump isn't as right-wing as they want him to be. Now, that wasn't the only reason. Like, from what I understand, based on uh, the analyses that have been given, this was, you know, a confrontation and the booing that was all triggered by him not um, not agreeing to do, like, a Q&A or something like that. It doesn't really matter, but I just like that he's getting a taste of his own medicine, right? You're being shouted down by your own people, and they are actively undermining what you're trying to, to peddle, right? You're trying to say that it's the left who's truly intolerant, the left who thrives on hate, which is funny when your dad was literally elected by scapegoating immigrants, but nonetheless, he always talks about, oh, it's the left, they're the worst ones, they're always protesting on college campuses, and um, looks like it's the right-wingers who are doing that as well. And another thing that really bugs me about Trump Jr. is that he has absolutely no self-awareness whatsoever. So he'll go on national television, primarily Fox News, and he'll complain about Hunter Biden and Joe Biden and the corruption and the nepotism. And that's correct. But I mean, those who are living in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Is that the, I don't know if that's the right um, saying, but in other words, if you are the beneficiary of nepotism and you were born into wealth, you have no room to talk, especially considering the fact that your sister, Ivanka, and her husband, they're making, what, 80 plus million every single year while being in the White House? So you have absolutely no room to talk, you absolute fucking hypocrite, you moron. With that being said, I'm going to play you a clip from CNN where they actually talked to a student who was there and he's going to give us a little bit more context and um, we're going to get some additional details here that I find absolutely fascinating. So here's the thing though, uh, a significant part of this protesting wasn't from a group uh, on the left. This was actually right-wing activists who were protesting. I want to bring in Chief Media Correspondent Brian Stelter with me and also Jintak Han is with us. He's senior staff photographer and news reporter at UCLA's student newspaper. Um, you were at the event and tell us what did you see and, and what was the feeling in the room? This was it, it's so noisy in this video. Just give us a sense of what was actually going on. Um, it felt a lot like um, a normal Trump rally sometimes. Um, at times, uh, yes. Uh, there was a lot of chanting of uh, USA. There was, um, towards the end, they were America first. Uh, there was one protester in the back um, who actively protested, um, standing by herself. She was wearing a hijab, um, at times um, directly criticizing the people on stage. Um, and it and felt kind of active, yeah. And what else, and what other kind of pro were you able to get a sense of all the, the other groups that were there protesting? Um, a lot of the people there were Trump supporters, I, feel, I felt like. Um, there were people who in the audience who passively listened and at times did flare up. Um, after the event ended, I did see some people come up and argue with the staff. Um, one person in particular was wearing a Hillary shirt. Um, another person was just wearing, a, uh, he was wearing a Make America Great Again hat and arguing with the person who was accusing him of spreading lies. Um, there were protesters outside the event um, who couldn't get inside because what I've, from what I hear, the event was at full capacity. 
-hmm. and they were denied access because of a fire hazard, for example, or the room being at capacity. I mean, Brian, it, you can tell it was pretty chaotic there. What all do we know? Yeah, and I think what we're seeing is this infighting within the conservative movement about what conservatism is in the Trump age. A lot of the voices you're hearing booing Donald Trump Jr. are far right-wing activists. They've been going to these Charlie Kirk Turning Point USA events for weeks now, uh, for many days now, disrupting these events because they think people like Donald Trump Jr. are not conservative enough. Now, they say they just want uh, nationalism. They say they want even more restrictive uh, immigration proposals. But really what they're doing is they're, they're defining themselves as Christian, conservative, white, straight Americans, and they're trafficking in racism and homophobia and anti-Semitism. These are some of the folks that were also in Charlottesville, not all, but some of them. And they've been trying to disrupt these events with Charlie Kirk and now Donald Trump Jr. because they think that Trumpism is not conservative enough. They want even more restrictive immigration measures, for example. So what we're really seeing, Brianna, is this strain of white identity politics uh, and how it's affecting the GOP. It's this fight within the GOP about what the party is going to stand for. So there you have it. There's a couple of left-wingers there, but for the most part, this was disproportionately, you know, a protest that was being driven by the right. And I find that a little bit scary, right? They were mad because Trump isn't extreme enough for them. Now think about this. Donald Trump is already openly fascistic, right? He's a proto-fascist. So the next logical step, if they want him to shift even further to the right, would be to graduate from proto-fascism to just outright fascism. So, I mean, what do you want? Do you want violence? Is that what they're looking for? Like, I don't know what they're looking for. But when we have this type of movement in the country, the shift to the far right, this hyper-xenophobic nationalistic movement, we should never be talking about the threat that the far left poses, right? Because the far left, what do they want? Healthcare, education for people. Whereas the far right wants more nationalism. They actively want some type of, you know, apparatus that I guess is even more militaristic and disruptive than ICE to, I don't know what, go into the homes of immigrants and kick them out of the country. Like, I just, I, I don't know what the logical conclusion is of this, but I don't want to think about those implications because that's scary, right? And the thing about Donald Trump and Trump Jr. is you reap what you sow. You have been pandering to these types of people. We're no longer using dog whistle racism. We're using bullhorn racism. They're not hiding it. They are wearing it on their sleeves. So this is what happens when you radicalize people understand that the consequences might come back to bite you in the ass. So um, I'll leave that there. I really have no reason to talk about this other than I just wanted to shit on Trump Jr. because this is someone who is just so insufferable, so arrogant, and um, it's nice to see someone who's an elite, who has been born with a silver, silver spoon in his mouth, just get a little bit of an ego check, right? Everyone needs that once in a while, but he really, really needed it. His dad does too. So out of all of the 2020 Democratic Party primary contenders, every single one of them but Bernie Sanders has at least one billionaire donor. Now, that's not going to change, and we know that for a fact because of this story that I want to share with you. So a billionaire named David Hull, who is in the industry of self-driving cars or something of that nature, his spouse tried to donate to Bernie Sanders in the summer once she really liked that he called Donald Trump a liar. Now, it wasn't a large contribution. It was $470. But Bernie Sanders rejected that. And her response 
is absolutely hilarious to me. So for more on this story, we go to Michaela Tindera of Forbes who writes, Marta Tama Hall, 67, is married to a billionaire, but she detests the one in the White House. So much so that when Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders labeled Donald Trump a liar over the summer, she made a contribution to the Sanders campaign. I appreciate the bluntness, Hall says. By donating, Hall put herself in a unique position. Forbes could not find any other billionaire or spouse of a billionaire who has donated to the Sanders campaign. For Sanders, the lack of rich supporters has been a point of pride. Not a single billionaire has donated to our campaign, the Sanders camp has proclaimed for months on bumper stickers, its websites, and social media. So how did the campaign respond when Forbes let them know that the spouse of one billionaire had donated? Thanks, a Sanders spokesperson said in an email. We are returning Miss Hall's contributions. It's not much to send back. According to the federal filings, Hall has donated only $470 to the Sanders campaign. Hall is not pleased. I think it's disappointing, she says. I don't understand why they would do that. That's ridiculous. I love this story so much, and I can't help, you know, but have a goofy smile on my face when I read it. Because Bernie Sanders... He is the real deal. His integrity is unmatched. For decades in Congress, he's remained principled. He hasn't wavered on any of his progressive ideals. And he's the one person in this race who hasn't accepted billionaire money and who obviously is terrifying the establishment. So much so that they're trying to pretend like he doesn't exist and that Elizabeth Warren is the real threat. They all know it's Bernie Sanders. He's the one candidate who is not acceptable to the elite class. So Bernie Sanders acknowledges that you can't beat a system that oftentimes corrupts and co-ops politicians by taking its money. You have to reject it. You have to reject every single nickel from oligarchs. Otherwise, you are part of the problem. You become part of the problem. So what Bernie Sanders is doing here is he's sending a message to you and I that he's committed to the cause. He can't be bought. He can't be bribed. And it doesn't matter that this individual who is the spouse of a billionaire is donating a small amount. He doesn't want their money. Because when you construct a campaign that is rooted in grassroots, then you don't change that. You don't move away from that. You don't make an exception for this one billionaire spouse. It doesn't matter that it wasn't that large of a contribution. If it comes from a billionaire, it's inherently tainted. Because billionaire is a class of people that should not exist. So this story is just, it, it really should demonstrate to people, if it wasn't already crystal clear, that it's Bernie Sanders. It's always been Bernie Sanders. 40 years of consistency. And with all of the special interests and elites and oligarchs that flood D.C., out of everyone there, he is the one person who has stood his ground, who is a committed organizer, who acknowledges that real change doesn't come from the top down by electing a politician and hoping that they're going to carry out the agenda they say they will. He realizes that real change comes from the bottom up. Bernie Sanders is the real deal. And let me just make my extra pitch for Bernie Sanders. And I've said this before, but I want to repeat this. We are in a really, really unique moment in history, and this is going to be a time where we're always going to go back to this moment when we're older. We're going to realize that if change happened, this was the moment 
where we got the chance to change the world. To get Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister in the UK and Bernie Sanders as President in America. And potentially Lula da Silva as President in Brazil. So you need to realize the gravity of this decision in 2020. This isn't just about normal partisan politics. This is above, you know, DC and all that politics horse race nonsense. This is our chance to change the world and literally save the planet. And if change will come, that change will be through Bernie Sanders. So regardless if we win or lose, I take comfort in knowing that I will be satisfied with my decision in choosing to support Bernie Sanders in 2020 because he's the one who is a once-in-a-generation candidate. We are probably never going to see someone like Bernie Sanders again in our lifetimes. With this history of progressivism, standing up for civil rights and civil liberties, until AOC is as old as Bernie, there will not be someone else with that record, with that history, it's Bernie. So when we get given, you know, this opportunity to vote for someone who is unbought, who refuses to acquiesce to the establishment and bend to their will, will refuses to be, you know, corrupted, who is standing up for us and fighting even harder for us, shifting to accommodate our ideals, getting on board with student loan debt cancellation, medical debt cancellation, abolishing ICE. If we don't take Bernie Sanders here up on this opportunity, the second chance to get Bernie elected, then we're idiots, we're stupid, and we don't deserve change. Because we can't complain about the system if we're not supporting the candidate who's telling us very explicitly, I want to change the system. From top to bottom, we're changing it in its entirety. We're not talking about a reform. We're talking about a revolution. Reforms can be undone. Revolutions are paradigm shifts. And in the United States, where we are effectively an oligarchy, anything short of a revolution will not suffice. So this story is just so great because it really demonstrates that Bernie Sanders is such a unique candidate. No other politician would do this. Just Bernie Sanders. Why? Because he's committed to you and I. He's committed to the movement. Now, he knows that even if he accepted this contribution, it's a small contribution. It's not that big of a deal at the end of the day. But he's principled. Look, we're not going to get the chance to elect someone like this again in the near future. So this is the moment where real change could happen. Take him up on that offer. We're not going to get another chance to vote for Bernie Sanders again. This is our last chance at a real change, at a political revolution. Take yes for an answer. Support Bernie Sanders and go beyond supporting him. Phone bank, text bank, canvas for Bernie Sanders. Because make sure that when we look back at this time in history, we feel confident knowing that we did everything in our power to make sure that we fought to get him elected. I'll leave that there. So there is a very specific reason why right-wing political commentators are able to attract so many billionaires who are willing to invest and fund you know, their effort to uh, spread right-wing propaganda. It's because they help to prop up the system. There's a very significant reason why, you know, billionaires like Robert Mercer are not donating to the rational national or secular talk 
or the Humanist Report. It's because we challenge the system and right-wingers are fundamentally opposed to any challenge of the system. They are about propping up the status quo. If you're a conservative, that's kind of something that is baked into the ideology, right? You don't want change. You want to make sure that things continue on the way that they are. And billionaires really need that. They need people like Ben Shapiro and Steven Crowder, who are bootlickers, by the way, to legitimize the system. To where whenever things get tough and we start to kind of look at capitalism and look at the root causes and talk about, you know, oligarchy and greed and the real sources of problems in this country, they need people like Ben Shapiro to tell you to look away. They need people like Steven Crowder to tell you that it's actually transgender people. They need people like Ann Coulter to tell you that it's not the capitalist, it's the immigrants from Latin America. They need that because so long as there are people there to prop up the system, then that helps to cultivate legitimacy for a system that is illegitimate, that is not working out for normal people, that is exploitative. Now, they oftentimes are called hacks by me, rightfully so, I think, because they do engage in a lot of team politics, you know, Republican versus Democrat. But at the end of the day, they will always serve their role as the bootlickers that they are of propping up the system. And there's evidence of that because lately we've been talking a lot about the wealth tax and billionaires because Michael Bloomberg just entered the race. Now, Michael Bloomberg is, he's more of a centrist, but, you know, generally speaking, he is identified as a left-wing billionaire because he is a Democrat. He used to be a Republican, but he's a Democrat now. So, once we start talking about billionaires, can you guess who's there to defend these billionaires, even if they are incorrectly believed to be part of the left? Right-wingers. So I've got two clips I want to play for you that demonstrate that. So the first is from Stuart Varney, who scolds liberals and progressives who aren't too happy about the idea of Michael Bloomberg entering the 2020 race. Michael Bloomberg entered the 2020 race Friday. By Saturday morning, the Democrats' civil war was in full swing. Bloomberg has widened the chasm between the socialists who now run the party and just about everyone else. The left is outraged at this. Billionaires screwing up an election that was supposed to put the workers front and center? Oh. Bernie Sanders, well, Bernie is just plain angry. Watch this. What we need is a dynamic democracy. A democracy where all of us play a role in shaping public policy. Not some billionaire who decides that he wants to run for president of the United States because he's a billionaire. Uh, let's be clear, Bernie's always angry. He would abolish billionaires. Now, now, he's got a $52 billion man coming right at him. Senator Warren, well, she responded to Bloomberg's run with, I'm going to call it theatrics. Watch this. And boy, there are some billionaires who don't like this. I think I hurt someone's feelings. Mm. Yeah, you know, this is, this is sad. This is sad. So there are people who are saying, oh, that I'm just mean to the billionaires. Mean. Oh, oh I know. I know. I don't know how that plays with middle America, but clearly the party is split. One side demonizes the rich, the other side says, leave them alone, you'll hurt the economy. The split gets worse. Bloomberg will not contest the early primaries. That means the other candidates will be forced to spend millions 
in Iowa, New Hampshire and elsewhere, while Bloomberg sits on his billions. And then there's the debates. The next one is November the 20th. It is highly unlikely that Bloomberg will qualify to be on the stage. He'll be watching the other candidates tear each other apart from the sidelines. Okay, Boomer. <laughs> Stuart Varney, he is the most elitist person ever. He can just talk about something that's completely benign. He could talk about fucking Call of Duty, and I would think that he sounds elitist because... It's just like the smug way that he says things. He's kind of like the right-wing version of Bill Maher. Actually, Bill Maher is the right-wing version of Bill Maher. But nonetheless, you know, he's just smug and arrogant. And it's so off-putting. And what he did there was act outraged at the fact that the left isn't too happy about a billionaire like Michael Bloomberg jumping in the 2020 race. Now, why would we be happy? We believe in democracy, right? Does Stuart Varney believe in democracy? So... Why is it that someone who is wealthy is literally able to buy their way into a race just because they're wealthy? Like, there's no qualification that makes Michael Bloomberg so special that he could enter at this late stage of the race and think that he has a shot. It's money. Nobody was uh, thinking that Howard Schultz, you know, was so qualified because of the way that he built up Starbucks. Nobody gives a shit about coffee and his expertise there. Howard Schultz was taken seriously because he's a billionaire. That's what people on the left are speaking out against. The mere fact that billionaires exist in and of itself is an issue. But when they start running for government running to assume even more power, because remember, in a capitalist system, wealth equals power, well, people calling that out, they're logical. They realize that if you truly want to live in a democracy, we can't have billionaires running. That really diminishes the value of our democracy. And furthermore, if you're just cutting out the middleman and you're not buying politicians any longer, you're just running yourself, that shows us how much further we have devolved into oligarchy in this country. So the fact that we're speaking out against that is rational logical and necessary but Stuart Varney isn't the only one because Ben Shapiro over at the Daily Wire also decided to scold us for speaking out against billionaires like Michael Bloomberg take a look the Bernie Sanders attack on billionaires and the Elizabeth Warren attack on billionaires is cynical and dis disgusting it really is disgusting it is I'm sorry Elizabeth Warren is worth 12 million dollars and there she's like these rich people these rich people they must be stopped and then you got Bernie Sanders who's basically a giant welfare queen living off the government for the last 30, what is he now? He's 78 years old, living off the government for 50 years of his life. And he's like, oh, well, you know, we can't let any of these people who actually earn the wealth run anything. They shouldn't run for office. Only I should. I've been useless my entire life. So useless, I was kicked off a commune. So you got Bernie ripping into billionaires. And then you got Michael Tomaski over at New York Times saying, Bill Gates, I implore you to connect some dots. He says, the billionaire class has begun unloading on Elizabeth Warren. You see, it's a class now. It's a class. Now, just to recognize a fact, Bill Gates is basically a lifelong Democrat. Warren Buffett is a lifelong Democrat. Okay, a lot of these quote-unquote billionaire class members are lifelong Democrats, people who have given tons of money to left-leaning causes, but they're a class now. You see? This is pure Marxist speak, where you are judged by the basis of your income, by the basis of your wealth, not by what you think or what you do or how you vote or any of that sort of stuff. Like George Soros is a billionaire. George Soros gives a lot of money to exactly the kinds of people that Jamie Dimon doesn't like. So treating everybody as a class based on their income is really... You know, when a normal person gets angry when they're talking, they simply raise their voice. But when a robot like Ben Shapiro gets angry, he increases the tempo. He speaks faster, which is so weird. <laughs> so what he said there, it, it was so stupid and nonsensical. Uh, so... 
to criticize billionaires, according to him, that is disgusting. Why is that disgusting? You see, what is disgusting, I think, is the fact that billionaires exist because to become a billionaire not only means that you have to exploit the labor of your workers, but on top of that, you have to hoard so much wealth that you can't possibly spend that much money in a lifetime. So to become a billionaire, that really speaks to the moral character uh, of any individual human being. You're just a bad person. You're a piece of shit if you're a billionaire. So the fact that there are people sleeping on the streets and struggling to put food on the table while billionaires exist, that's what I find disgusting. But, you know, Ben Shapiro, he's an elitist, and he's doing exactly what he's paid to do. There's a reason why billionaires pay the Daily Wire. It's because they need propagandists like him to prop up this failing capitalistic system, but you can only prop it up so long before it crushes you. People are waking up to the fact that capitalism, it's exploitative, and it's not working. Now, um, apparently, Bernie Sanders is a welfare queen because he's been in public office and gets paid by the government. Like, I don't know why he thinks Bernie Sanders is a welfare queen, but if you work for the government, if you're a U.S. senator, if you're a member of the House of Representatives, yes, you take a salary from the government. Why does that make him a welfare queen? And the irony here is that capitalists are the true welfare queens. I mean, Walmart pays their workers such low wages that those wages literally have to be subsidized by the government. We bailed out the big banks after they crashed the economy. The real welfare queens are the capitalists. Ben Shapiro won't tell you that. Ben Shapiro won't tell you about how the capitalists will privatize the profits but socialize the losses. That's our system. We have a system of capitalism where we pump billions of dollars into specific industries just so they won't collapse. I mean, look at our healthcare industry. The Affordable Care Act was premised on the idea that you have to buy private insurance and the government pumps billions of dollars into these private plants to make sure that they're cheaper because otherwise they would be too expensive. I mean, our entire system is corporate socialism. Ben Shapiro won't tell you that because Ben Shapiro is either dumb or disingenuous. So what Ben Shapiro needs to do is be honest. He doesn't hate socialism. He loves socialism, but socialism for the rich. Socialism for large multinational corporations, not socialism for normal people. He also says Bill Gates and Warren Buffett are lifelong Democrats. And... We don't discriminate. We loathe them just as much. And yes, we want to confiscate their wealth, um, excuse me, our wealth that they stole just as much as we want to take away uh, Robert Mercer's, Mercer's wealth or uh, the Koch brothers' wealth or the Koch brother wealth because one of them is dead now. <laughs> so, I mean, this doesn't persuade people. Like, he thinks that he can somehow rope us in and bring us to his side by saying, look, there, there are left-wing billionaires who donate to political causes that benefit you, right? Right, but that's a problem. Money and politics should not be what facilitates change. It should be what people want. But that's not the way our system operates because a 2014 Princeton University study by Drs. Gillens and Page found that political outcomes are not determined by normal people. We have a statistically insignificant impact on policy outcomes, whereas special interests and elites, they actually do influence policy. 
So we don't care if a billionaire is supposedly left-wing or right-wing. This isn't about politics. This is about class and cl class solidarity. There's certainly class solidarity among the wealthy. So it's time that normal people recognize their class and have a little bit of class consciousness, you know, in spite of efforts by propagandists like Ben Shapiro to dissuade you from realizing the reality of class warfare in this country. He also says treating everyone as a class based on their income is really stupid. That is the whole point of class, you moron. I mean, <laughs> the fact that people take him seriously, it's it just, it's puzzling to me. This is someone who doesn't really know what he's talking about. People take him seriously because he is ostensibly intelligent because he talks fast and is confident. Doesn't make you smart. Doesn't make you smart at all. Confidence and arrogance does not mean that he actually knows what he's talking about or that he knows about political philosophy. Ben Shapiro, like Stuart Varney, these are paid propagandists. One is ostensibly independent and the other is working for Fox News, which is the propaganda arm of the Republican Party. Look, the point is, bootlickers like Stuart Varney and Ben Shapiro are showing their cards. This isn't so much about Democrats versus Republicans to them, in spite of what they say. This is about protecting elites. They don't want you to question the system. They don't want you to look to billionaires and their hoarding of wealth and the way that they've rigged the economy and shifted the tax burden away from them and onto you and I. They don't want you to look at that. They don't want you to think it's the billionaires. Again, they want you to think it's not enough deregulation or it's immigrants. Whatever the scapegoat is, they don't want you to look at what really is the issue in America. It's capitalism. That's the root cause of every issue in this country. It is the lowest common denominator. That desire to increase shareholder value and maximize profits, that corrupts every industry you could think of. Education. Look at what charter schools have done. Healthcare. Look at what the for-profit insurance companies have done. Hell, even democracy has become a money-making venture. It's capitalism, stupid. They don't want you to acknowledge that. But unfortunately for them, people are waking up. And now 70% of millennials are socialists. So, um, bad news for them. A new generation will soon assume power. And um, we're not going to be in favor of the status quo as the right-wing bootlickers are now. We are actually going to change the system because we don't have a choice. The system uh, doesn't work. I would say it's broken, but it's functioning exactly as you'd expect a capitalist system to function. And now we are in late-stage capitalism, so people are becoming privy to the fact that capitalism doesn't work. So we can do better. Even though Joe Biden is still technically in the lead nationally when you look at aggregate polling data, well, going to polls from early primary states, it just doesn't look good for him. So CNN, of course, is coming to the rescue to prop up his failing campaign, and they offered him a town hall where he proceeded to make a fool of himself and lie yet again about Medicare for All. Now, I've talked about basically every single lie you can imagine with regard to Medicare for All and healthcare from centrist and corporate Democrats, but he trotted out a couple of new lies that I hadn't heard yet. And of course, since they're new and I feel as if I am, you know, the Medicare for All channel, I had to respond and debunk them because these lies are damaging to the reputation of Medicare for All. I mean, you have grassroots activists who have been fighting for this for decades and so many more people joined the fight, you know, in 2015 once Bernie Sanders popularized the term Medicare for All. And now what we're seeing is centrist Democrats like Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg, they're actually 
effectively driving down support for Medicare for All and boosting support for a public option. So we have to combat their lies and tell people the truth about Medicare for All and just explain to them what it is. Like, when I talk about Medicare for All, I don't lie to people about what it is. I tell you what it is, and the objective truth about that policy proposal is so great that people just feel inclined to support it. But the problem is people in America are bombarded with corporate propaganda and talking points that come directly from the industry, not just by political parties, but through mainstream media. So what we need to do whenever we see it is call it out. And that's what I'm going to do. So this is what Joe Biden said about Medicare for all. Healthcare is the single most important thing you all face. And what, what, I mean, don't you think you're entitled to know whether or not your taxes are going to go up higher than the benefits you will get? Significantly higher. That's what almost every single study professor you know says. You know it says that. And so how do you explain that? Well, you should stand up and do at least what Bernie did and said, yep, it's going to cost 7.5% more in your Withholding tax, meaning your pay will be deducted another 7.5%, and on top of that, a 4 to 5% tax increase. Well, that makes sense, he's, he, but that only gets you halfway there. So there's a little bit of truth in lending here. Well, Senator Warren, of course, has said that she's not going to be raising those taxes, as you know, right? She has a different plan. You talked about her support for Medicare for all last week. Um, you attacked her. I think it's a fair word. Your, the quote was from you, it's just an elitist attitude about you're either my way or the highway. Let's get what? something straight. She attacked me. She went out and said, Biden, she didn't use my name anymore than I used her. She said, Biden is a coward. Biden, Biden is in fact in the pocket of. Biden is, and she went down the list of saying that I, I should be in a Republican primary. She did say you were in the wrong primary. Oh, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Now, what do you call that? And what do you call that? So I responded by saying, no, no, here's what I said. It's not about her. It's about the attitude that exists right now. If you disagree with me, you must be bad. There must be, there, you, they question motive. Look, we can disagree. I respect her view. I really do. What I was talking about is you go home and you tell everybody people are busting their neck and the kitchen table conversation is going on tomorrow morning, like in the house I was raised in. And you say, by the way, I know you don't think we should raise your taxes on this, but this is good for you. This is good for you. What do you mean? But where did that come from? What specifically is elitist about how she's pursuing Medicare for all? No. The attitude that we know better than ordinary people what's in their interest. I know more than you. Let me tell you what to do. I'm, and it wasn't she's elitist. The attitude is elitist, that people can't make up their own minds. You like your health insurance, but you shouldn't like your health insurance. You should have to give that up. I'm going to demand you not have that. We're going to give you something better. I like, I'm, I know what I want. So that is an attitude that says, okay, you're telling me it's my way or the highway. And it's not about her, it's about the attitude out there. The attitude that we know best, you do it my way. Where I come from, growing up in a middle-class neighborhood, the last thing I liked is people telling my family and me what we should know, what we should believe, as if somehow we weren't informed, that we, just because we didn't have money, we weren't knowledgeable. I resent that. And I wasn't talking about her, I was talking about the attitude that if you don't agree with me, get in the other party. 
I'm more of a Democrat from my shoe sole to my ears than about anybody running in this party, okay? Including her? Including everybody, okay? Hey, Joe, back up. You don't have to stand that close to people when you talk to them. She can hear you just fine. He was standing so close to her that she probably literally smelt the health insurance CEO's boot on his breath that he was licking probably before attending that town hall. So that in and of itself, it's not just Trumpian and creepy, but it's really off-putting. Even if I'm not like there, even if I'm not in Aaron Burnett's shoes, like I, I cringe for her because that's just that's just weird. Now, one more thing before we address what Joe Biden said. I'm so sick and tired of mainstream media pundits just erasing Bernie Sanders from the conversation and pretending as if Medicare for All was Elizabeth Warren's idea. Bernie Sanders wrote the damn bill. Bernie Sanders was endorsed by National Nurses United and real proponents of Medicare for All like myself. We don't even believe that Elizabeth Warren is going to fight for Medicare for All. So stop giving her credit for something that Bernie Sanders popularized. It's infuriating to me. But I digress. Moving on. So what Joe Biden said about Medicare for All was the usual arguments about it being too expensive and how much it will cost. I've already debunked that a million times on this channel, but, wanna talk, but what I want to talk about is the new line of attack that he's trotting out against Medicare for All. And that is that it is elitist for politicians to support Medicare for All. That's literally his argument. And he says it's elitist because you're telling Americans that you have to have Medicare for All and you don't get the quote unquote choice to have private if you want it. Now, what is he not telling you that he's the one who's actually elitist? Because getting to choose between public insurance and private insurance, that's not real choice. What I want in terms of choice when we're talking about healthcare is the choice to visit any hospital I want and see any doctor I want. But if you have a public option, meaning you just allow the government to be one additional competitor in our health insurance market, well, you're not actually giving us more choice because those same insurance networks, those same limitations will exist. But he's trying to convince people that it's actually Bernie Sanders who's elitist for opting for Medicare for All because he's simply imposing a health insurance policy on you. No, you're the one who's elitist, Joe, because there is a power imbalance between People and their insurance companies, they're holding people hostage and they don't care about the delivery of healthcare. What they care about is increasing shareholder value. The delivery of healthcare is not their goal. Profits are. So you're the elitist Joe Biden. And look, there's a reason why the health industry is betting on Joe Biden to save them from Medicare for all. So the one who's actually being elitist and condescending here is Joe Biden, not Bernie Sanders. What Bernie Sanders is doing is he's empowering people to make their own decisions about healthcare. He's just saying, look, the government will take care of the bill and you make the rest of the choices you want. Whatever doctor you want to see, have at it. You don't have to choose between a public option or a private option. And let me remind you that a public option is doomed to fail from the start because what's going to happen? Well, these clever marketing companies that are working with the insurance industry, they're going to market these plans to healthy people, younger people. So that is going to shift the burden onto the public option. All the sick people will be on that plan and it'll end up being overburdened and underfunded and then it'll collapse. And then elites like Joe Biden will point to that and say, look, I told you that government run healthcare didn't work. And then we'll never get Medicare for all because everyone will point to that example of the public options failure as I guess government run healthcare doesn't work. So he's lying to you and he knows he's lying to you. Now there's another portion of this where he lied. 
He said, quote, don't you think you're entitled to know whether your taxes will go up higher than the benefits you will get? So what he's implying here is that the tax increase will not actually offset the overall healthcare cost. That's the implication, right? He's a little bit vague here. But what he's not telling you is that, yes, if you get a 7.5% payroll tax, Bernie is taking away your monthly health insurance premium. We're eliminating copays and deductibles. So this will net save people money every single year. And we're not just talking about pennies and dimes. We're talking about thousands of dollars that the average American family will save every single year if we switch to Medicare for All, even in spite of that 7.5% payroll tax. So Joe Biden, he has to lie because the facts just aren't on his side. Because if he told the truth about what Medicare for All actually brings to the American people, well, they wouldn't be on his side. They'd turn against him. So that's why you have to lie and obfuscate. That's why Pete Buttigieg has to market Medicare for All who wanted as increasing choice between public and private. They have to reframe the conversation because these are health industry stooges. Joe Biden is someone who is not looking out for your interests. He was the vice president when Barack Obama had a supermajority. They could have passed single payer. They didn't even try to put forward a public option. And now we're supposed to trust that Joe Biden is actually going to fight for a public option a second time? I mean, you had the chance to fight for a public option and you didn't. So why should we believe that we're even going to get that if you're president, Joe? The answer is, we shouldn't. We shouldn't believe Joe Biden because Joe Biden is an opportunist. He doesn't care about policy. He cares about power. That's what this is about. So don't be offended when people suggest that maybe you should run in the Republican Party primary because times have changed and Democratic Party politics, that's changed too. So you are misaligned with what the base of the Democratic Party wants. We want someone who's a populist, who cares about the policy issues that we're fighting for on the ground, what grassroots activists are fighting for. And what you're pitching sounds very similar to a lot of moderate Republicans. So if you truly want to run for president and you want power, run as a Republican, challenge Donald Trump, because you're more aligned with the Republican Party than the average Democrat in 2019, especially young people, hence why we don't support you. So that's all I'll say. You know, I wasn't really expecting anything different. I expected lies about Medicare for all from Joe Biden. But it's getting tiring, and as he, uh, you know, begins to fail and fade away, now we have to combat the lies that Pete Buttigieg is spreading up about Medicare for All. And I'm sick of it. We shouldn't have to beg people running in a Democratic primary for Medicare for All. Like, this has been an idea for decades in the Democratic Party, dating back to FDR. This is not a new idea. This is something that the Democratic Party has ostensibly always been in favor of. Or I shouldn't even say ostensibly, because... Before, I mean, I'm sure Democrats actually supported it, but now we basically have to drag them, kicking and screaming, to get them to support Medicare for All, and they won't. Why? Because they're corrupt. They sold out. They're taking money from the industries that want to maintain the status quo, where they rip us off and charge us, you know, thousands of dollars every single year to give us shitty healthcare coverage. But no, we're sick of that. We're done with that. And anyone who isn't opting for Medicare for All can step aside. No Medicare for All, no vote period. So in case you weren't paying attention, we have a complete and utter psychopath in the White House. And no, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. He's a psychopath too. But who I'm referring to is Stephen Miller, who is unquestionably a white supremacist. Now, back in April, uh, Ilhan Omar correctly identified him as such, 
saying Stephen Miller is a white nationalist. The fact that he still has influence on policy and political appointments is an outrage. Now, this tweet actually offended quite a bit of people. For example, Professor Gadsad responded saying, he is a white nationalist in the same way that you are an Islamophobe, Ilhan. Is there no end to how idiotic and divisive you can be? Is there no limit to your dark heart? Well, as you're gonna see, that tweet from Professor Gadsad didn't age very well because Ilhan Omar was proven completely right. Now, this shouldn't be something that is shocking. Like, if you're paying attention and you know anything about Stephen Miller, it's pretty obvious. You know, if you connect the dots, you can easily logically deduce the man is a white supremacist. Now, if you were skeptical before, there's an article from the Southern Poverty Law Center that details his affinity for white nationalism. Now, this was revealed in leaked emails, and it should permanently put your skepticism to rest because this is based on 900 emails that he sent to Breitbart. This is based on conversations. Um, and what it really details, and these were obtained by Hate Watch, by the way, is um, it details the scope and the depth of, you know, his nationalism and his white supremacy. And it's incredibly unsettling to know that this is someone who's in the White House with this ideology, with this affinity for white nationalism. Now, as Michael Edison Hayden explains, the emails which Miller sent to the conservative website Breitbart News in 2015 and 2016 showcase the extremist anti-immigrant ideology that undergirds the policies he has helped create as an architect of Donald Trump's presidency. These policies include reportedly setting arrest quotas for undocumented immigrants, an executive order effectively banning immigration from five Muslim-majority countries, and a policy of family separation at refugee resettlement facilities that the Department of Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General said is causing intense trauma in children. So what are in these emails between him and Breitbart? Well, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, he shared a link from white nationalist website VDARE with Breitbart, and this is a website that promotes this notion of diversity being tantamount to quote-unquote white genocide or The Great Replacement. He recommended a racist novel, which is pretty overtly racist, by John Raspale. This is a French novel, and it's called Camp of Saints, and it fictionalizes white genocide, where a white woman is raped to death by refugees in one section of the book, and the main antagonist is an Indian-born person who literally eats feces. Now, this book is something that he recommended to uh, Breitbart. He wanted them to read it and write about it. This is also a book that Steve Bannon likes. Emails show he was upset with talk of removing Confederate statues right after white nationalist Dylan Roof carried out a terror attack on a black church. He reached out to an infamous Islamophobe, Pamela Geller. He shared a link from Infowars where they promoted, you know, the conspiracy theory about how Sandy Hook was a false flag, you know, so he's a racist and a conspiracy theorist shithead. Now, that's just some of what they've uh, unveiled here. They're going to be periodically releasing more and more of these emails to kind of reveal more about Stephen uh, Miller, but here's what they conclude. Miller's perspective on race and immigration across emails is repetitious. When discussing crime, which he does scores of times, Miller focuses on offenses committed by non-whites. On immigration, he touches solely on the perspective of severely limiting or ending 
ending non-white immigration to the United States. Hate Watch was unable to find any examples of Miller writing sympathetically or even in neutral tones about any person who is non-white or foreign-born. Now, let me remind you that this is someone who's serving in the White House, who has a very direct impact on policy, who has instructed Donald Trump to adopt policies related to immigration that are hurting people in a really concrete way. For example, that family separation policy that Stephen Miller helped convince Donald Trump to carry out, that zero tolerance policy where we literally separate children from their parents at the border. It's gotten so bad that in the year 2019 alone, Trump's administration detained almost 70,000 migrant children. This is because people like Stephen Miller are in Donald Trump's ear. This is uh, absolutely chilling. And again, it's not like this is really surprising. I think that most people who were just even casual observers of politics who knew anything about Stephen Miller knew that this was someone who was dangerous. He's a white nationalist. He is a white supremacist. And this is someone who should be nowhere near power because we are seeing the consequences of this rhetoric, the consequences of this thinking, and how it hurts people. So, needless to say, Ilhan Omar was right about him, and she tweeted about that, reminding all of us how right she was, saying, as I said earlier this year, Stephen Miller is a white nationalist, and now we have the emails to prove it. This type of racism and hatred has no place in our government. Miller needs to step down now. And I second that. This exposes him and confirms what apparently wasn't obvious to people like Professor Gad Zad. The man's a white nationalist. The man is a white supremacist. He's dangerous. So he should not be anywhere near power. He needs to step down. But I would guess and say nothing will come about. Um, he's going to remain in place. And that's that. White supremacy and white nationalism in America... It's just been normalized, right? Where we don't even really think twice about it because there's been this far-right movement that re-emerged alongside the presidency of Donald Trump. And it's not just happening in the United States. It's happening elsewhere as well. But it's become something that people see more often. And as a result, they've become desensitized to it. And that's really troubling. We should never, ever normalize and become desensitized to this. We should never just accept white nationalism and white supremacy as something that is an unfortunate fact of reality. No, we have to identify it, root it out, and get these people out of power and shame them so they don't want to, you know, take office and be in a public position of power because this is harmful, this is dangerous, it's actually hurting people. So, of course, he needs to resign. He probably won't, but nonetheless, it is important that we know about this and we talk about this because, um... Again, this is a dangerous ideology. I shouldn't have to say that, but I feel as if we're at a time in American politics where we do have to denounce white supremacy vehemently because people are either minimizing the threat or they're just not even acknowledging how you know big of an issue it is. Um, and we can't do that. We can't bury our heads in the sand any longer. We have to acknowledge the threat that this poses and how it's hurting people now directly. We should never not be outraged about the fact that Donald Trump is caging migrant children at the border, that families are being separated. That is unacceptable. That is unforgivable. But a new report from the Associated Press details just how broad this 
policy is, you know, the scope of it, how many people this is affecting. And the number is larger than even I imagined. So as Owen Higgins of Common Dreams reports, the U.S. held a record 69,550 migrant children in detention facilities in 2019, a Tuesday report from the Associated Press and PBS Frontline found, leading to major psychological and physical harm and lasting trauma. No other country held as many immigrant children in detention over the past year as the United States, 69,000. 550, said AP tech reporter Frank Bajak in a tweet promoting his colleague's work. The physical and emotional scars are profound. The story lays out in excruciating detail the emotional pain of victims of President Donald Trump's child separation policy, focusing on, among others, a Honduran father whose three-year-old daughter can no longer look at him or connect with him after being separated at the U.S. border and abused in foster care. I think about this trauma staying with her too, because the trauma has remained with me and still hasn't faded, the father told AP. 69,550. That is nearly 70,000 children who will put up with lifelong trauma, likely mental health issues, PTSD, all because of Donald Trump's xenophobic zero-tolerance immigration policy. Now, that's not to say that previous administrations were, weren't also incredibly barbaric. George Bush was barbaric. Uh, Barack Obama had the alien transfer exit program. So Donald Trump, though, is basically the logical conclusion of our unusually cruel immigration policy, which essentially uses cruelty as a deterrent, which tries to send a message to other migrants, hey, if you come here, this is what you have to look forward to. This is what we will welcome you with. And it's just, I mean, what do you even say to this? If you support Donald Trump still, even after learning about this, you have no morality. You're morally bankrupt. And I don't like to make sweeping generalizations about people's moral character, but how can you turn a blind eye to this? How can you say, you know what, I'm voting for him in spite of this, regardless of whatever other economic reason you may or may not have? How can you justify this? This is mass human suffering being caused in concentration camps in the United States in 2019. 69,550 children, as young as her, a toddler. That picture is going to keep me up at night because it is so tragic. I have a nephew who's that age, and to think that he would be separated from his mom is heartbreaking to me. And think about why they came here in the first place. Because of the violence in Latin America largely due to our war on drugs. Because we destabilize their countries by overthrowing their governments. They're coming here because it's our fault. And this is what we welcome them with. The United States of America does not give a flying fuck about human rights. If that wasn't already clear to you, then it should be crystal clear now. We don't care about human rights. Period. From this to the way that we turn a blind eye to, you know, the systemic subjugation of Palestinians. It's just we don't care. We don't care. This is an international outrage. This is morally reprehensible. And this is what our government is doing. 
And what are we concentrating on oftentimes when we talk about this issue? Whether or not calling them concentration camps is the correct language. Whether or not it's politically correct to say we should abolish ICE or if that's disrespectful or not. I mean, this is how far we've fallen. It's not just that we're separating children from their parents. This is something that will stay with them. For the rest of their lives, they will be traumatized by this experience. Now, the response from right-wingers will be, well, Mike, they could have just chose to stay home. Right. Um, this is not a choice for a lot of people. And even if it is a choice... Even if some of them just choose to move here because they want to give their family a better life, would you do something different if you felt like you had the opportunity to improve your children's lives? Like, I just, I don't know what to say. There's really no words for this. It's just, it's a moral outrage and no commentary can really explain the cruelty of this. So, I'll leave that there because I don't know what else to say. This is incredibly heartbreaking and I want to share this picture around because I want it to really demonstrate what the American government is about. This is what we're about. We're not about promoting democracy. We're not about human rights. This is what we represent now. Traumatizing children because we don't want their parents to come here because, let's face it, they're brown. That's what this is about. We're pro-immigrant insofar as those immigrants are white. Let's be honest. That's what this is about. It's not about legal or illegal immigration. That's code for white and non-white immigration. So I'm sick of it. I'm done beating around the bush. It's disgusting. Yeah, that's it. So the first day of public impeachment proceedings took place, and in spite of attempts by Republicans to grandstand, I don't think it went very well for Donald Trump. In fact, I'd argue that it was devastating for Donald Trump. Now, there were hours of hearings to unpack. There's a lot, right? There's a lot of moving parts to this story. But what I want to do is simplify it. Let's reduce this down to just two questions to determine whether or not Donald Trump should be impeached and subsequently removed. One, did he pressure the Ukrainian government to investigate a political opponent, Joe Biden? And two... Was there some sort of quid pro quo, implied or otherwise? Meaning, did he say that, you know, he would withhold funding? Did he say he wouldn't meet with the president of Ukraine unless they investigated Joe Biden? Now, I believe we got answers to both of those questions. And I think that if you're a reasonable person, you can logically deduce just after today that he's guilty. Now, that's based on what I think. That's not necessarily speaking to legal guilt and legal culpability because the House, of course, has to vote on this and then we will determine whether or not he'll be removed in the Senate. But for now, getting to that first question, did he or did he not pressure the Ukrainian president uh, to investigate Joe Biden? We got an answer to that that was pretty clear. Last Friday, <clears throat> A member of my staff told me of events that occurred on July 26th. While Ambassador Volker and, I, Volker and I visited the front, this member of my staff accompanied Ambassador Sondland. Ambassador Sondland met with Mr. Yerbach. Following that meeting, in the presence of my staff, at a restaurant, 
Ambassador Sondland called President Trump and told him of his meetings in Kyiv. The member of my staff could hear President Trump on the phone asking Ambassador Sondland about the investigations. Ambassador Sondland told President Trump the Ukrainians were ready to move forward. Following the call with President Trump, the member of my staff asked Ambassador Sondland what President Trump thought about Ukraine. Ambassador Sondland responded that President Trump cares more about the investigations of Biden, which Giuliani was pressing for. At the time I gave my deposition on October 22nd, I was not aware of this information. I'm including it here for completeness. In other words, Rudy Giuliani, at the behest of Trump, pressed a foreign government to investigate a political opponent of Donald Trump. This is obviously incredibly incriminating. Now, this isn't very surprising, but the fact that this came out on day one in testimony, I think that this really speaks to just how brazen Donald Trump is. Like, he doesn't care. I always like to, you know, liken him to the mob bosses in slapstick comedies, you know, Corky Romano, for example, where they're just so stupid and they commit crimes out in the open, not even trying to cover it up. I mean, think about this. He was just investigated with the whole Russiagate situation for two years. And the question was, you know, did you collude with the government to help yourself politically? And he's freed of that. And all of a sudden he does this. He pressures a foreign government to investigate one of his political opponents. Unbelievable. Now, on top of that, going to question number two, because I think that that satisfied question number one uh, pretty sufficiently. We got an answer. Yes, he wanted them to investigate Joe Biden, one of his political opponents. So there's no feigning ignorance here. It's out in the open. Everyone heard Bill Taylor's testimony. Now, moving on to the second question. Did Trump withhold aid until said investigation of Joe and Hunter Biden uh, was completed or executed? Well, we got an answer to that as well. Ambassador Sondland also told me that he now recognized that he had made a mistake by earlier telling Ukrainian officials that only a White House meeting with President Zelensky was dependent on a public announcement of the investigations. In fact, Ambassador Sondland said, everything was dependent on such an announcement, including security assistance. He said that President Trump wanted President Zelensky in a public box by making a public statement about ordering such investigations. Wow. So <laughs> let's just try to step back and digest what's being said here. So there was a quid pro quo, but Ambassador Sondland didn't even know the full scope of it. He just thought that Trump wouldn't agree to meet with the president of Ukraine unless he agreed to investigate one of his political opponents. But it went deeper than that. Trump was withholding aid that was already appropriated by Congress. And he said, you're not getting this unless you investigate my political opponent. Now, we don't necessarily know the extent to which that was stipulated. Maybe it wasn't an implied quid pro quo. But regardless, I mean... You, you don't have to be a genius or a legal expert to acknowledge this is clearly illegal. If you or I did this, 
we would be locked in prison already. There wouldn't even be a question. But because Donald Trump is a person in power, well, there is a question. And as Stand Up America put it in a tweet, this testimony tells us we know Trump used military aid to bribe Ukraine to interfere in 2020. We know anyone else who did that would be in jail. What we don't know is if there's a single Republican in Congress who will uphold their oath to defend our constitution. And that's just it. This testimony confirms that Donald Trump did in fact commit a crime. And the answer to both of those questions that we started this segment out with is yes. It's an unequivocal yes. It's just a matter of will he actually be prosecuted for the crime that he's committed? Not only should he be uh, impeached, but he should actually be removed as well. It's just a matter of will Republicans actually do it. I'd argue no, but, you know, they're going to try to downplay the revelations of these testimonies, but they know that the writing is on the wall and this doesn't look very good for Donald Trump or any of his defenders. And according to Bloomberg reporter Sahil Kapur, well, at least one Republican operative is aware of this. He tweets, just got this message from a Republican operative. Not from me, but this is a massive fucking shit show. No one wants to be here. So, I mean, I think that it's it's pretty obvious Donald Trump is guilty. The question is, will Republicans let Donald Trump get away with something that they would never let Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton get away with? We'll wait and see, but... If I had to guess, I'd say um, Donald Trump will probably get away with this. I think the House will most likely vote to impeach. The Senate probably won't vote to convict him. Now, you can argue that, you know, this isn't the biggest crime that Donald Trump committed. There are more serious impeachable offenses, such as the hush money payments, conflicts of interest, obstruction of justice, or, you know, violations of the emoluments clause. There are bigger issues, and I'd probably agree with you if you made that argument. But what we know with regard to the Ukrainian phone call is that what Donald Trump did here, this is a crime, and it's unquestionably impeachable. It's just a matter of Will he actually be punished for committing a crime? And uh, that's what we will uh, have to wait and see. But uh, this is devastating to Donald Trump. So we are about two and a half months away from the Iowa caucus. And there are still Democrats jumping in the 2020 race. I mean, what is going on? We had Michael Bloomberg enter the race last week. And now another Democrat, specifically a corporate Democrat, Deval Patrick, former governor of Massachusetts, will be entering the race. So as Jonathan Martin explains, former governor Deval Patrick of Massachusetts told senior Democrats Wednesday that he will enter the presidential race according to two party officials, reversing his decision last year to forego a run and adding yet more volatility to an unusually fluid Democratic primary. Mr. Patrick will enter the race Thursday morning and head to New Hampshire's state house to file paperwork to be a candidate on the primary ballot there, according to a Democrat from 
familiar with his plans. Mr. Patrick was calling a list of party leaders Wednesday to inform them of his decision and is planning to begin his campaigning with a video and new website. Joining the campaign less than three months before the first votes are cast in Iowa, at a moment when candidates are usually dropping out and not jumping in, Mr. Patrick will face long odds. Yet, his decision to run reflects the fractured nature of the Democratic race at a moment when Michael R. Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York City, has also taken steps to enter the primary. I find it really uh, hilarious the way that he's going about this because he is incredibly transparent. What he's doing is he's contacting Democratic Party leaders because he wants to communicate to them that in the likely event Joe Biden fails, because he's already face-planted, he wants to be their backup plan. He wants to be the establishment's insurance policy against Bernie Sanders. Because Joe Biden, let's face it, even though he's polling very well nationally, he's still in the lead. In early primary states, he has lost his lead, and it doesn't seem like he's going to retake the lead. So what the establishment is looking for is anyone who can save them from a Bernie Sanders. So what he's doing is he's telling them that he wants to be their new golden boy. He doesn't want that to be Pete Buttigieg. He wants to be the one who is the establishment's new favorite. Now, I'm going to share a tweet that pretty much sums up everything you need to know about Deval Patrick. Um, not only is he a foreclosure mogul, but on top of that, as Alex Koch points out, he worked for Texaco, Coca-Cola, subprime mortgage lender ACC Capital Holdings, and currently, he works at Bain Capital. <laughs> <laughs> no, God, please, no, no! So he has that in common with uh, Mitt Romney, at least. So he's not going to win. He doesn't have a chance. And, you know, the establishment is incredibly upset that Joe Biden lost. Um, well, he's not, he, he's not out of it yet. He didn't lose yet, right? But it seems likely that... Joe Biden isn't going to work out too well for them. You know, he's not doing as well as he was initially. He lost that lead and they want a fallback option. And none of the other options are even, you know, anywhere near Joe Biden. The next closest bet is Pete Buttigieg, right? But I think that they probably realize that Pete Buttigieg is going to fail hard in a general election in, in the event he goes up against Donald Trump. He's too elitist. He is absolutely um, establishment for sure. I don't really think he has a political identity. He just kind of sees whatever way the wind is blowing. And that's what he did in this primary. And then he chose a lane and uh, decided to be centrist as opposed to being progressive like he was at the beginning. But he's going to lose. And they want someone who's going to win. And they want someone who's safe. Joe Biden was their safe choice. But he's out, so they're looking for anyone. Um, as Alex Koch pointed out, first it was Tom Steyer. Well, he's not gaining any traction. Then it was Michael Bloomberg. Seems like, you know, Democrats don't really like him. And now it's going to be Deval Patrick, and the same thing will be true. So what the establishment is going to have to realize is that they're not going to get their number one choice this time, most likely. They are not going to get their number one choice. And it's really nice to see the establishment scramble. But you know what? It's it's just too late. Like, this is wishful thinking to jump in this late as some sort of savior. I mean, it just shows how arrogant people like Michael Bloomberg and Deval Patrick are. So, um, <laughs> he's not going to win. Uh, I doubt he'd even reach 
3% in the polls. Um, he's going to really have to have the media put in overtime to prop him up. But uh, this is another candidate who wants to be the establishment savior who will inevitably phase planned. Um, and I'll be happy to watch that and make fun of him when he ultimately does. So for those of you who have been watching The Humanist Report for a while now, you know that I have been incredibly critical of corporate media's coverage of progressive policies, namely Medicare for All. Because being adversarial doesn't mean you criticize politicians who attack Medicare for All by using industry talking points. Being adversarial means, one, you educate people on what Medicare for All actually is, and two, if you want to be adversarial to someone like Bernie Sanders, you press him to explain how he's going to get this passed, for example, and to explain the policy. Um, and when it comes to um, adversarialism in journalism with regard to Medicare for All, any politician who's against it has got to explain why they are against something that has been a long-term goal for the Democratic Party until it was captured by the health insurance industry and other large special interests. So I'm going to play for you two clips from the mainstream media. One will be from MSNBC's Katie Turr, and the other will be from CNN's Chris Cuomo. Both of them will discuss Medicare for All tangentially, but the way that they talk about this is very different. One of them is basically a perfect example of what I would want to see from the mainstream media in a fair way to cover it, and the other is basically... The worst case scenario. So the first is from Katie Turr. This is her talking to 2020 presidential candidate Michael Bennett, who, yes, is still running about Medicare for all. And she's going to press him on why he doesn't support Medicare for all. What you're talking about right yes. now, it seems like you're saying that the democracy that we are currently living in, it doesn't work. It's broken, which calls for foundational broken. change. But you're not a foundational yes. change candidate. Why are you not a candidate yeah. calling for um, for Medicare the, for all like some uh, of the other candidates? Why are you not a candidate coming yeah. out there and saying we need to fix Washington <laughs> and in order to fix it, we've uh, got to we've got to I, change it from the ground up. Why are you still so I, in the I, moderate I, wing? I, I do. No, I do believe that. I actually believe I'm more of a foundational candidate than the ones that are offering Medicare for all because Why? I know that's just an empty promise. It's just an well, empty promise. Why can't promise. Canada have it? I why can't the UK have it? Why can't we have it? Well, it is different from what we have, from what Bernie Sanders' bill is to begin with. But there's an answer for that, which is we already have an existing health care system. And we, we, can, we can decide that we're going to spend the next 10 years fighting a losing battle for Medicare for all. Or we can fight to restore economic uh, opportunity for people. We can fight on the climate front. That was absolutely fantastic because she had him stumped. And she didn't even have to try that hard to stump him because he wasn't expecting any pushback. Because usually what happens on these news shows is they'll bring on a politician who's opposed to Medicare for all and allow them to espouse corporate talking points uninterrupted for minutes at a time and use the same lines that we hear from Republicans and the industry, the health insurance industry. So we never hear pushback from them. We never ask them, are you saying this about Medicare for all because you are taking money from the health insurance industry? I mean, we never see pushback, but what we got from Katie Turr there was excellent. We got pushback for the first time on this issue, perhaps uh, in years, maybe. So she asked him very simple questions. If you're a foundational candidate, if you believe in structural change, why not back these sweeping policies like Medicare for All? Why can Canada and the UK have it, but in the United States, we can't have it? Uh, Michael Bennett did not have an answer 
to any of this. His answer effectively was... This is what happens with even the most minimal amount of pushback. Corporate politicians collapse because they have no core, right? They're saying the things that they're saying. Michael Bennett is saying the things that he's saying about Medicare for All because he is taking money from the industry. He is corrupt. He was bought off. So he doesn't actually believe in anything, right? So the reason why he doesn't have a response is because when you force a politician to divert away from their corporate talking points, then they're stranded. They have nothing left to say. And his pushback, or his response rather, was... We already have an existing healthcare system. As if the UK didn't have an existing healthcare system before getting a national health system. As if Canada didn't have a healthcare system before getting single payer. That's not an argument. So, I mean, all you have to do is apply a little bit of pressure and they become unraveled. They have no idea how to respond. So that's what I like to see. That is the ideal segment the ideal way that a corporate pundit will cover Medicare for all. But now moving on to CNN's Chris Cuomo, he's not going to talk to a politician, but he's going to editorialize and talk about the issue of Medicare for all. It's a complete disaster. I apologize for the audio in this clip. This is all I could find. But watch what he says and listen to how condescending he is. And the dense and hyper-ambitious M4A Medicare for all talk seems to miss the state of play. It's like working on pretty footwork and your style when your opponent is standing there with a shotgun. Remember, this is a big part of why Trump won in 2016. Hillary, rotten Clinton. Rotten Clinton. Little Marco, little Marco. Lion Ted Cruz, low energy Jeb Bush. Crooked Hillary Clinton. Crazy Bernie. Insults. Not insights, simple, not sophisticated. Look, Bloomberg getting in suggests not so much that he thinks he could win. I don't know where he's getting that from, but that this field can't. His top advisor said Mike is increasingly concerned that the current field of candidates is not well positioned to defeat Trump. The Democratic nominee has to be properly armed for the onslaught that's coming. What does that mean? You've got to answer. Question number two, are you speaking the language that America wants to hear right now? No offense, but again, this dense talk and sophisticated policy plans of a trillion here and trillion there in three years versus five, and I'm going to take your health care. This is about not being the rabid right. Do you do that if you are seen as an equal opposite of radical left, single payer or not? Medicare for all versus Medicare for all who want it. This is dense in times of determined simplicity. The Democratic governor-elect, okay, promised to protect Obamacare and the Medicaid expansion. Kentucky kept it simple, okay? He spoke the language of the local people, targeted. Many of the Democratic candidates are talking about blowing up the entire system to many it sounds equally as crazy as what they're getting in other words normal people are just too stupid to understand complex policy ideas that's basically what i took away from that clip 
that is inherently elitist and it is rich splaining. Chris Cuomo is a multimillionaire. He has a net worth of $9 million. He has a yearly salary of $4 million. So he doesn't know what normal people can or can't understand. He doesn't know what they want. His interests are incredibly different, dramatically different than a Walmart worker's interest. So for him to say, no, just keep it simple, stupid. Don't, you know, go too in-depth with these policies. He's talking at you rather than listening. Now, let me remind you, the goal of a news anchor is to educate people. You can editorialize, that's fine. But I want facts. You can supplement those facts with your commentary, but I don't expect you to come on here and basically say, don't talk about Medicare for all. No, that's not your job. You're not a politician. You're a news anchor. So tell us the news. Tell us the objective facts about reality. Now, the problem is that if you just talk about Medicare for all in a very matter-of-fact way and you just look at the details, people will begin to support Medicare for all. Hence why we saw a substantial shift in public support for Medicare for all once Bernie Sanders really started to educate people about it and campaign on it since 2015. Now, here's why he says we shouldn't focus on complex policies. Well, because Donald Trump won because of insults not policy positions. Are you sure about that? Because he campaigned in the Rust Belt and he talked about how trade policies devastated the working class. He talked about bringing back coal, which was a false promise, but it gave people who were formerly uh, coal miners a lot of hope that they didn't have. So he spoke to people. He had a populist message, a fake populist message, but a populist message nonetheless that resonated. It wasn't because he called people, you know, little Marco or whatever. Nobody cares about that. It was funny, sure, but that's not why he won ultimately. And on top of that, Chris Cuomo uses Mike Bloomberg to justify why he doesn't think that any Democrat in the field can uh, beat Donald Trump. Because if he's getting in the race, maybe that doesn't necessarily mean that Bloomberg thinks he can win, but he certainly thinks that other Democrats can't win. Yes, because a billionaire like Mike Bloomberg certainly has his finger on the pulse of America. I mean, this segment is so elitist and out of touch. Chris Cuomo is usually like one of the better anchors on CNN. More so than anyone else, he brings on progressives like Anna Kasparian and Jen Uger. So I'm surprised that he went this route. Like, well, I shouldn't be that surprised because it's CNN and they are dog shit. But I mean, nonetheless, it still seems like He's better than this. Now, here's what he said that actually pissed me off. Are you speaking the language that America wants to hear right now? This was a question he asked, and he basically says, no offense, but, you know, this dense talk of sophisticated policy plans, trillions here, trillions there, and I'm going to take away your health care. This is not going to resonate. Now, who is running in the Democratic Party primary on taking away health care? Name one candidate who is running on that. Even the corporate Democrats are not running on taking away health care. Joe Biden is someone who I despise. He is not running on taking away health care, and I do not believe he wants to take away health care. He wants to build incrementally on the Affordable Care Act, which is not enough, which won't suffice, which will still leave millions of people out who will die. But do I believe he wants us to go backwards and take health care away? No. But what Chris Cuomo is insinuating here is that Bernie Sanders, he actually does want to take away people's health care by moving to Medicare for all, 
That's taking away people's health care. This is a lie. This is a brazen lie from a news anchor whose duty is to educate the public. And here he is actively deceiving them. This is disgusting, morally reprehensible. And he contends that you beat the right if you are seen as the equal opposite to the radical left for whatever reason. And according to him, Democrats talking about blowing up the entire system, they sound equally as crazy as Donald Trump. But this is based on your own subjectivity, your experience as a multimillionaire. To you, the prospect of blowing up the system, it doesn't sound appealing because the system is working out phenomenally well for you. Your brother is a governor. Your father was a governor. You are paid millions of dollars every single year to talk on CNN. So, of course, from your perspective, the prospect of blowing up the system seems, you know, just appalling, right? You wouldn't want that to happen. It's self-interest. I wouldn't want to blow up a system that's working out well for me. So, you know, of course, Chris Cuomo wouldn't want to do the same. It's a matter of self-interest. But the problem is that the system has failed the American people. And that's why we're even talking about blowing up the system. That's why we're questioning capitalism. Because whenever people get desperate, they take a hard look at the system, at our economic system, at our political institutions, and they try to figure out what's working and what isn't working. The status quo is not working. Just because it's working for a select few like you, Chris Cuomo, doesn't mean it's working. So stepping back to put this entire segment into perspective, when you juxtapose Chris Cuomo's segment with Katie Turr's segment, the difference is night and day. I don't necessarily believe that Katie Turr personally supports Medicare for All, but what she is doing here is she is not being neutral. She tried to be fair. She tried to challenge people who are opposed to Medicare for All, who are in power in a way that other anchors have not done so far. The only other person who has actually spoken even remotely favorably about Medicare for All is Ali Velshi. But aside from them, I mean, Everyone else in mainstream media has attacked Medicare for All and literally spread lies about Medicare for All when news anchors are supposed to be educating people about Medicare for All. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that they should advocate for Medicare for All. I'm not saying they need to editorialize and tell people who watch CNN and MSNBC how wonderful Medicare for All is. What I expect from news media, what everyone should expect from news media is objective facts. Tell people the facts about Medicare for All. How every other country has some form of healthcare where it's free at the point of service. How nobody else in modern countries go bankrupt or die because they don't have healthcare. Tell people the objective facts of reality. That's all I expect. Now, in the event Chris Cuomo did that and then supplemented the facts with his shitty commentary, that would be one thing. But he literally lied. He didn't talk about the facts. He said that people who support Medicare for all like Bernie Sanders want to take away health care. So I shouldn't have to be, you know, educating people who probably took journalism classes about objectivity and fairness in reporting. But here we are. It just goes to show you that overall, the current corporate media landscape is not working. We've got to bring back the fairness doctrine and we need to make sure that these corporate media outlets disclose the conflicts of interest, that 
you know, viewers know when they're talking about Medicare for all, the reason why CNN may be saying things like this about healthcare and Medicare for all is because they take advertisements from Big Pharma, right? They pay CNN to run ads from Aetna and whatnot. So, you know, these are two very different examples. One of them with Katie Turr is a phenomenal example of objective reporting that is not too common in mainstream media. The other is a disaster and basically the worst of the worst when it comes to reporting about Medicare for All in the Chris Cuomo CNN clip that I showed you. I'll leave that there. So I want to take a moment to talk about a man named Rodney Reed, who is currently on death row in Texas, and he is set to be executed on the 20th of this month. Now, the problem is that he's innocent. He did not commit the crime that he is going to be executed for. And as the Innocence Project explains, Texas has scheduled the execution of our client Rodney Reed for this November 20th, despite evidence that exonerates him and implicates the murder victim's fiance, Jimmy Fennell. Reed has been on death row since 1998 for the 1996 murder of Stacy Stites, and he has been repeatedly denied DNA testing, which could prove his innocence. Furthermore, three forensic experts have submitted affidavits recanting their original testimony and stating that the original time of death is inaccurate, making the timeline for Reed killing Stites implausible. New witnesses, including Stites' own cousin, have come forward and corroborated Reed's claim that they knew that Reed and Stites were romantically involved. At this point, the state's original case has been completely discredited and deconstructed. So that's the simplified version of this story. The case against him completely collapsed. Now, I'm going to link you to a Jacobin article, which is incredibly thorough, and it goes through the evidence and Really, it's overwhelming. There's no question that this man is innocent. But regardless, we are down to um, the nitty-gritty here. He's going to be killed in days if we don't take action. So I want to share this tweet from Patricia Buzang, who says, Urgent, in seven days, Innocence Project client Rodney Reed will be executed for a crime he didn't commit. Please contact Governor Greg Abbott plus the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles now to stop his execution. 737-210-4800. Not from Texas. Tag a friend who is. So if you are from Texas, make that call. You could save this man's life if you make that call. And on top of that, if you're not from Texas, reach out to someone you know who is from Texas because this is incredibly urgent. This cannot happen. He cannot be killed for a crime he didn't commit. This is one of the many reasons why we have to abolish the death penalty because there are too many instances where innocent people are put to death. And this can't happen in a modern egalitarian society. So we have to take a stand here and we have to raise, you know, uh, awareness about this issue and sound the alarms. Rodney Reed will be killed by the state of Texas on November 20th if we don't make a ton of of noise so please we need all hands on deck share any information you have share a petition that i am going to link in the description box from the innocence project please make some noise about this because this is a life and the fact that he served this long in prison in and of itself when he's innocent is an injustice but for him to be put to death when we know that he's innocent would be beyond the pale so please, spread the word. We have to save Rodney Reed. 
So I want to pick up on the conversation that we had last week on the show about the Bernie blackout, because as you all know, networks like CNN and MSNBC, they are deliberately trying to ignore Bernie Sanders. Their goal is to erase him from the 2020 Democratic Party primary process. And it's problematic. It's actually going to hurt him in a real way, because even if Fox News, for example, covers Bernie Sanders and 100% of the coverage of him is negative, well, still, there was a report that shows Fox News viewers are more likely to vote for Bernie Sanders and support Bernie Sanders than MSNBC viewers. Because even if you're covering a candidate in a negative way, that still allows their message to penetrate right? People get to hear what Bernie Sanders is about, even if they are criticizing him. But just simply ignoring him makes it seem as if he's not even a competitor. He's a non-entity. So that can have a bigger impact. Now, a new In These Times report actually confirms what we already knew. MSNBC is, in fact, ignoring Bernie Sanders. Now, a lot of us who are tuning into this show uh, and watch independent media, you know, to us, it doesn't matter because we don't get our news from uh, cable networks. But for a lot of people, left-leaning voters who will participate in the Democratic Party primary, they actually do get their news from MSNBC. And as Bronco Marcetic reports, once known as the lone, forthright voice of liberalism on cable news, MSNBC began a lurch to the center in 2015 with its new chairman, Andrew Lack, going on a conservative pundit hiring spree and shedding the network's lean-forward branding. Even so, MSNBC is positioned to have an outsized influence on the 2020 Democratic presidential primary. According to the Norman Lear Center, liberals watch MSNBC at respectively three and ten times the rate of more modern moderate and conservative viewers. After Fox News, MSNBC is the most watched cable news network, beating out CNN. What's more, the median age of MSNBC's audience is 65, and older voters turn out in higher numbers in primary contests. So let's just stop right there and consider the implications of this. Like it or not, MSNBC is going to have a pretty significant influence on the 2020 Democratic Party primary. So the way that they cover candidates can literally make or break an election cycle. That's how much influence they have. So when we talk about them ignoring Bernie Sanders, when we talk about the Bernie blackout, we're not just, you know, Chicken Little who likes to cry about the sky falling. This is actually something that matters because this can determine whether or not Bernie Sanders wins or loses. Now, he may just be popular enough to where this isn't going to have as big of an impact as it did back in 2015 and 2016 when he had zero national name recognition, but still, this is incredibly important. Now, in the In These Times uh, report, what they looked at to determine that MSNBC was ignoring Bernie Sanders was the amount of times that they talked about the three frontrunners, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Joe Biden. And on top of that, looking at the content of these candidates, they determined how much of that was positive versus negative. So they did this by basing, you know, um, their report on six different MSNBC shows. Now, what they first conclude is that MSNBC is, in fact, largely ignoring Bernie Sanders. Quote, the coverage quickly revealed a pattern. Over the two months, these six programs focused on Biden, 
Often to the exclusion of Warren and Sanders, Sanders received not only the least total coverage, less than one-third of the Bidens, but the most negative. As to the substance, MSNBC's reporting revolved around poll results and so-called electability. After the 2016 presidential election, in which the press was criticized for disproportionately giving Donald Trump $2 billion of free media, MSNBC may be repeating history. So... When you look at national polling from Real Clear Politics averages, Joe Biden is in the lead nationally. Now, he lost that lead in early primary states like Iowa and New Hampshire. But for the most part, at this point, when he has had this many face plants, he shouldn't be in the lead. But because MSNBC talks about him so frequently, well, they managed to inadvertently prop him up as a serious contender when we all know that he would face plan in the event he were to go up against Donald Trump. So what we're seeing is the same thing happen in 2019. They're propping up a candidate who is failing. In spite of the failures of Joe Biden and the many failures, he's still viewed as a legitimate candidate because MSNBC dedicates so much time to him. Now, of the time dedicated to all of the candidates, well, it's very clear that they do have a favorite because Elizabeth Warren did get the most favorable coverage. Looking at her coverage from Rachel Maddow and the last word with Lawrence O'Donnell, well, it was entirely favorable. And the rest of it was, you know, fairly favorable as well, although the 11th hour with Brian Williams was the most critical of Elizabeth Warren. Now, moving on to Joe Biden, he actually did receive quite a bit of negative coverage, but also remember that he received the most coverage. So even if he's getting fairly negative coverage in comparison with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, especially when you look at All In with Chris Hayes, just the mere fact that he's being covered this much, well, that doesn't really matter that the coverage in and of itself is negative. What matters is the repetition of coverage. Now, going on to Bernie Sanders, Rachel Maddow's show is the only show that actually had positive coverage of Bernie Sanders with how little they did, in fact, cover him. But the 11th hour with Brian Williams, I mean, this is mostly negative coverage of Bernie Sanders. Hardball with Chris Matthews, mostly negative coverage of Bernie Sanders. Now you have, you know, all in with Chris Hayes, the beat with Ari Melber, and the last word with Lawrence O'Donnell have mostly positive coverage. But keep in mind that that positive coverage doesn't necessarily matter so much if they rarely talk about Bernie Sanders. Now, if they were covering Bernie Sanders more so than Joe Biden, then that positive coverage would matter. But I mean, if they largely ignore him, that in and of itself is the biggest problem. Now, finally, one last thing that I want to look at with regard to this report and MSNBC's coverage of the 2020 Democratic Party primary is this. Overall, MSNBC's primary coverage was devoid of policy discussion. Viewers were told often that Warren has a plan for everything, but not what those plans might contain. So predictably, they're fixated on the horse race, and Joe Biden is dominating their coverage. So, I mean, we're seeing the same thing, and this matters. They're ignoring Bernie Sanders, and thankfully, Rachel Maddow and Chris Hayes, they're giving him positive coverage, but that isn't necessarily the issue. The issue is that they're not talking about him enough. This is one of the frontrunners, right? So you would expect them to dedicate a pretty large amount of coverage to him, at least equal time with Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren, but that's not what's happening. And on some of these shows with how little they cover him, 
they're covering him mostly in a negative light with uh, the uh, 11th Hour show, for example. So this is the liberal network. When you tune into MSNBC, if you're just a casual observer of politics, you think I can trust them because I'm liberal and they're liberal and they just, you know, everything they say reflects my values. So I'm going to take them at their word. If they say Bernie Sanders is a bad candidate and if they're not covering them, then maybe I shouldn't take him seriously as well. This is the impact that they're having on the primary. So imagine if Bernie Sanders got the coverage that Elizabeth Warren or Pete Buttigieg got. He would be absolutely unstoppable. But an ostensibly left-leaning network is ignoring Bernie Sanders and not really covering him very favorably. Well, we see that Bernie Sanders is being held back in large part due to the mainstream media. We talked about the surge of Bernie Sanders in the polls and how the media is ignoring that and focusing on Pete Buttigieg's surge. So, I mean, this bias, it's problematic. What we really need to do is bring back the fairness doctrine and mandate equal coverage of candidates. But, I mean, that's not going to happen anytime soon. And it's having an impact now. So, the least that we can do, really, is educate people about MSNBC and how they are not fair to Bernie Sanders. They're not left-wing. They're center-to-center-right. And, I mean, we just have to turn people on to alternative sources of information, you know. Um, indie media, not just the Humanist Report, but other indie media shows that talk about Bernie Sanders, who is the best candidate if you truly are on the left. So, as much as I enjoy dunking on Dave Rubin because I think he's genuinely stupid and doesn't actually have a political ideology, you know... I try not to talk about him because he's a grifter. He benefits whenever we talk about him, whenever he's part of the conversation, positively or negatively. You know, he thrives because of this. Now, the reason why Dave Rubin is incredibly popular among the right, in spite of said stupidity, in spite of having no core political ideology, is because he is that token gay guy who minimizes homophobia. So whenever a Republican says, look, I think that a cake baker should be allowed to discriminate against gay couples and not bake them wedding cakes, even if he or she bakes wedding cakes for straight couples, Dave Rubin is there to say that's perfectly reasonable. Believing that we should be legally discriminated against is acceptable because I, as a gay person, am telling you that that's okay. So he effectively ends up enabling homophobia and this hurts everyone in, in the LGBTQ community, but he does this because it's part of his grift. That's why he gets paid, right? That's why PragerU pays him to be in their videos. That's why he teamed up with The Blaze. They need a gay person to minimize and erase homophobia because, you know, that's how uh, they've been doing this forever. You know, Fox News will bring on a black person to condemn Black Lives Matter, and they'll bring on a gay person to talk about how, um, you know, gay rights issues aren't actually that serious, and there are bigger issues. I mean, this is what he does. This is part of his grift, right? So you get the point. And he's been enabling homophobia for quite some time, but he's ramped it up as of late. And I think people are starting to notice. So, for example, he shared this picture of AOC with the famous drag queen where he says, your Democratic 2024 ticket, ladies and gentlemen, and other. So, the implication by sharing this is, hey, look at how weird the left is. Look, at this is a drag queen. This is a man dressed up as a woman. Isn't that weird? Isn't that strange? So, what he wants to do is otherize drag queens, 
Um, and drag queens have been a part of gay culture forever. That's that's the way it's been since before he was born, since before I was born. Drag queens are just a part of gay culture that we celebrate. Um, but he's trying to make it seem like this is odd. Now, why is it odd? Well, the underlying implication is that this is odd because this is a man dressed as a woman and this is a defiance of gender norms. Like, if you're a man, you should be dressing as a man. But the problem with making fun of people for, you know, um, defying gender norms is that being gay in and of itself inherently defies gender norms, Dave, because you're a man and you married a man. That obviously is a defiance of gender norms, because if you are born male, you're supposed to act masculine and date women and be intimate only with women. But Dave Rubin doesn't realize that the very thing that he's trying to otherize and make fun of is the exact reason why gay people are, you know, discriminated against, why there's prejudice against people, because we also defy gender norms. But this moron doesn't even see it that way, because, again, he doesn't care. It's a grift. But, you know, lately he's been doing even more things that are just nonsensical and downright damaging to the community. So he interviewed Trump Jr. to promote his idiotic, cringeworthy book, Triggered. And there was this gem in here that I wanted to point out. I mean, you can find a Democrat that will say anything. I mean, there's some really loony shit that they're, you know, that, that they'll run with. Biden wants to send men to women's prisons if Correct. they want to go to If they want to do it, it seems totally reasonable. I mean, just randomly throw in some casual transphobia because that's what the right likes. Joe Biden is someone who I loathe, but Joe Biden is not saying that we should send men to women's pres prisons if that's what they want. He's talking about trans women. Now, I don't know the specific quote that Dave Rubin is referring to, but obviously Joe Biden is referring to trans women. Trans women being in women's prisons, which reasonable people view as something that is necessary because obviously they would be at risk in men's prisons. So the fact that he brings this up to prove how crazy the left is, I mean, it just shows you how far he's fallen, how much of a sellout he really is. But this clip that I'm about to play for you, it says everything you need to know about Dave Rubin and what he represents. So this is Dave <laughs> This is Dave Rubin literally giving Trump Jr. permission to call him a gay slur. Now we're equal. You call me whatever you want. You know what I mean? Like you, yeah. you could call me well, a that's what it right feels now. Like it wouldn't me. mean anything to me. <laughs> oh my God, that's so sad. Dave, that is so sad. That's so sad. And the thing that really kills me about this is a couple of months ago in July, I released my PragerU parody as the character Rave Dubin. And... What I said, being obviously overly hyperbolic, it came to life. Parody became reality because of Dave Rubin. Take a look. For example, I get a nice bonus every time I bring up my husband and then subsequently give one of my right-wing colleagues permission to call me a faggot. Yeah. You could call me well, a faggot right it feels now, like it wouldn't me. mean anything to me. That is so pathetic. Like, pathetic doesn't really do this situation justice. There needs to be a new word to describe that. You can call me a fag because uh, we're all equal now. Unbelievable. Dave is a clown. 
My brain is still in recovery mode from taking in so many high-level important ideas. All right, so there you have it. Um, according to Dave Rubin, he's okay if right-wingers call him a fag because he's equal. Well, let me ask you this, Dave. If you lived in the South and not a $1.5 million house in Los Angeles, would you still feel that way? If you couldn't even like come out because you knew that your family would kick you out or disown you or potentially harm you, would you still be okay with being called a fag if you knew that holding hands with your husband walking down the street could actually make you vulnerable to violence? I mean, the man is a complete idiot. I don't, I don't know what else to say about that. Um, to enable homophobia is one thing, but to enable it to this extent, I mean, this is just masochism. I don't know. I don't know how else to describe it. This is embarrassing. And, um, something that I guess we should have expected from Dave Rubin. Like, I, I honestly didn't think that he would literally stoop to this low, but, um, here we are. Dave Rubin gives Trump Jr. permission to call him a fag because we're all equal now. All right, Dave, whatever you say, I don't give anyone permission to call me a fag. And I don't think any other gay person who's reasonable would want to be called a fag because that slur is dehumanizing. It reminds us that we are not like our heterosexual counterparts. We're the other, we're different. We're less than. So if you want to be called that, that's on you. That's fine. Uh, but I think that most gay people would have an issue with you trying to normalize slurs and the use of slurs by right-wingers against our community. But um, whatever. What a disgusting uh, joke of a person. Shell of a human being. You know, you have no core. You have no ideology. This is what you wanted. I hope that the money is worth it. I hope it's good. You know, because... Damn, if I were in Dave Rubin's place, I would not be able to live with myself. I would be, you know, unable to sleep at night because I would, you know, hate the fact that I knew I was doing damage to my own community. Well, it's time for another Patreon poll. This week, I asked patrons of The Humanist Report who their second choice is in 2020. Now, this is something that I was really curious to find out. This doesn't matter too much because we're all going to be voting for our first choice, but this is something that I think I've been relatively conflicted with throughout the course of the 2020 primary. You know, in the beginning, I kind of wavered back and forth between Tulsi Gabbard and Elizabeth Warren, although as the primary progressed, I realized that it's okay to not have a second choice. Like, I really don't have a second choice. I think that Bernie Sanders is my first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and so on choice because nobody else really meets my criteria. Like, I don't want a reformer. I want a revolutionary. I want a paradigm shift in this country. And Bernie is the only person who I believe will actually bring about real change. So, you know, I'm not going to fault myself for not picking, you know, a third, fourth, fifth choice. You know, I'll admit now that a distant, distant second for me, um, really my 99th choice with Bernie being one through 98 would be Elizabeth Warren. But I'm going to fight for Bernie Sanders until, you know, he's out of this because I absolutely believe that he's what we need at this point in time. But with that being said, I asked you guys what you thought and uh, your responses were very interesting. So in first place, 
The second choice for most of you with 41 votes is also Elizabeth Warren, so you agree with me there. And then predictably, Tulsi Gabbard comes in second with 27 votes, Andrew Yang with two votes, Marianne Williamson with one vote, and then we have Bernie Sanders with 11 votes, meaning that to these people, either Elizabeth Warren or Tulsi Gabbard are their first choice, and then we have other with four votes. Now let's see what you guys say about this. Naomi the Born Owl says, as Nina says, there's only one. There's only one person who's going to fight for us. There's only one person that will make our lives better. That's Bernie. Jolyn McCulley says, I don't trust Warren. Tulsi showed integrity in 2016 when she stepped down, when she saw the DNC cheating the democratic process while Warren was bowing down to the queen behind closed doors, hoping for a VP position. Tulsi would shiv Trump in a debate while Trump will be tap dancing on Pocahontas's political grave. Tulsi also appeals to more independents and Republicans, while Warren's key support is white, upper-class Harvard elites. If the goal is to beat Trump, as the DNC and party leadership claims, then there is only Bernie or Tulsi. Christopher says Warren is not as good as Sanders on a lot of issues, but she does support Medicare for All and a lot of more progressive issues that are important to me. I do have a problem with what she said in 2016. If she had listened to Bernie back then, she might be president today. But just on an issue-by-issue -issue basis, she is a great second choice. I do hope she drops out soon and endorses Bernie, though. Jay Miller says Tulsi Gabbard has done multiple interviews on fucking Breitbart. Breitbart is stormfront for people people who aren't as open about the fact that they are Nazis. She could do better than Breitbart. Dave Rubin and even Fox News are better than Breitbart. She's explicitly going after white supremacist support and consequentially has taken any remaining sympathy I may have left for her and flushed it. She went on there this time to fearmonger and pandered to the alt-right about immigration. Bye. Having said that, my second choice is holding my nose for Elizabeth Warren and is Marianne Williamson, even still running. I thought she dropped out. Patrick, number one. Bernie, number two. Bernie. Charles Washington. Warren is the only candidate who can make any claim to being a Bernie Light candidate, albeit laughably so. Additionally, she is the only serious candidate who supports a federal jobs guarantee. I think the importance of a federal jobs guarantee is understated. I fail to see how one can claim to be serious about combating climate change without having a centralized effort to do so now that the stakes have escalated perilously high. Market forces have failed to make the proper investments into green energy because because it is more profitable, along with less risky for them to simply invest in already established markets. In fact, this entire crisis is their fault to begin with, considering they sat on the information of profit-driven industrial production's effect on climate for decades without saying a word. Borgon says, I voted other because a third-party candidate would probably be my go-to should Bernie not get the nomination. I have been so thoroughly disappointed with Dems for so long that Bernie, rather than being some wacko extremist pick, to me represents a concession that a compromise and a dose of socialism can reform what seems to be a system nearly beyond repair. Bernie's my compromise candidate. Otherwise, I see next to nothing in the Dems worth supporting. He brought me into the Dem fold very tenuously from third parties slash not voting at all in prior elections, and I may very well leave that fold if he doesn't get the nomination. So there you have it, a couple of different takes as to why they are choosing, you know, Tulsi or Elizabeth Warren or none as their uh, second choice. And yeah, this is really uh, important feedback. Um, good insight. Thank you all so much for sharing. And as usual, I'm going to turn this to the audience. 
who's watching this on YouTube. Who is your second choice and why? I look forward to uh, hearing from you. You heard from me, you heard from uh, patrons of the Human Support, but sound off in the comments. Who's your second choice, if you even have one? Because I think it's perfectly acceptable to say, it's Bernie. Bernie's my number one, my number two, my number three, my number four. I think that's perfectly reasonable because he really is a once-in-a-lifetime candidate who is unlike everyone else who's running. So um, let me know what you think. Well, it's time for another voice message from our Patreon patrons. This week, it's from Michael Castelli, who asks a question about the main race going on for Susan Collins' Senate seat. Hey, Mike. Uh, my name is Michael Castelli. I'm a big supporter and fan of your show. And um, <clears throat> congratulations, by the way, on surpassing a quarter of a million um, uh, YouTube subscribers on your YouTube channel. So I am wondering if you would consider interviewing Lisa Savage. She's a Green Party candidate for uh, Maine Senate. And uh, I will put a link to her webpage below. Thanks. Thank you so much for that message, Michael. Uh, Michael Costelli is someone who I've actually talked with. He's been on uh, our monthly patron live chats, which we have another one coming up on uh, Friday, I believe. Um, and yeah, um, that's a fantastic question. And thank you for, uh, you know, pointing out that we reached quarter of a million subscribers. That's a pretty big milestone. And any milestone is something that I want to take and celebrate, seeing that the YouTube algorithm isn't necessarily that fond of the Humanist Report as of late. But, you know, we'll take a victory where we have one. Um, In terms of Lisa Savage, I would love to bring her on the program. I've been trying to bring on like one candidate per week and i think that she really is phenomenal and what's unique about this race is that maine has ranked choice voting so a green party candidate very well could actually win because this is not you know a situation where the democratic establishment will fearmonger about a green party candidate spoiling the election there's no vote splitting here you can rank your choices one through three and so on and guess what your choice could actually win because people are now voting sincerely. Now, this race is really unique because there isn't just, you know, a Green Party candidate running. There is, I believe, a Justice Democrat running. And I think her name is Betsy Sweet. I'm not 100% sure. I could be uh, mistaken there. But yeah, there's a lot of great people going up against Susan Collins. And Susan Collins absolutely should be defeated. She voted for Brett Kavanaugh. She's got to go. And on top of that, there's a GoFundMe effort to raise money to go to her opponent. So whoever I think wins this nomination or goes up against Susan Collins, ultimately, they are absolutely going to have a great shot at beating Susan Collins. So yeah, I would love to bring on Lisa Savage. Um, I'll link you to her campaign website if you want to find out more information about her. But yeah, hopefully she will be uh, one of our candidates in our candidate spotlight at humansupport.com very soon. So thank you so much for the message, Michael. So I want to take some time to look at this focus group from Allison Camarota of CNN. I really enjoy these segments where she talks to voters because I think it's a really easy way to pick the brains of people without actually having to talk to people, which I certainly uh, like. So she's going to talk to uh, white women from swing districts in the state of Pennsylvania 
about the 2020 election and who they're going to vote for. They're politically kind of all over the place. You know, some went from Obama to Trump. Some have voted for Republicans and Democrats. So I think it's really interesting to see what they have to say because I want to know their thoughts so we can respond accordingly and give ourselves, you know, the tools that we need, the arguments that we can use to persuade people like this if they are, in fact, persuadable. Now, I'm thinking that this is probably going to be um, a train wreck. So we'll see. I'm not, uh, I haven't seen this, so I'm watching this for the first time. My reaction is genuine. But um, nonetheless, let's, uh, let's go ahead and hear what they have to say. On Wednesday, we introduced you to a group of six voters from two key swing districts in Pennsylvania. These voters are an important demographic, white women without college degrees. All say they vote for the person, not the party. Three of them voted for Barack Obama and then Donald Trump. So we wanted to know which candidates and issues interest them this time and how many plan to vote for President Trump. Here now is part two of our Pulse of the People. So show of hands, how many of you have at times voted for Republicans and at times Democrats? All of you. How many? Okay, I've got to stop it right there because I already have something I want to say. So this is something that even though it's odd, it's not like unfamiliar. Like we all know someone in our family or social circle who kind of goes back and forth, Republican, Democrat, Republican, Democrat. And usually the thing that I find with these types of people is they're always looking for change. Like they want someone who's offering them solutions to problems. And when the left winger doesn't offer them solutions, then they opt for the right winger. And I use the term left winger loosely because Bill Clinton and Obama, these were not left wingers. They're centrists. But, you know, I digress. Uh, they want change, but they're not getting it. And so this is why I really want people to learn about political ideology and political philosophy. So that way they have some set of underlying core values that they use to evaluate the candidates so that way they know okay a left winger is saying that we need to uh deregulate and um cut taxes for the wealthy and they need to be able to pick up on the cues that okay this is what is going to happen if we opt for that solution but you see people they they just they don't have time right they're working too much um, they're overworked, underpaid, and they don't have time to pick up on these types of things. They don't have time to educate themselves. So this is where you and I come in, where we have to educate them and let them know who is and isn't the real deal. But I mean, this is not uncommon, even though it's weird. Like I couldn't imagine going back and forth. I know people who have done this. Like my dad is a perfect example. He voted for, I believe, Bill Clinton, um, hated Bill Clinton. Then he voted for George W. Bush, hated Bush. Then he voted for Obama and, you know, was incredibly enthusiastic, did not like Obama one bit so he opted for bernie in 2016 but the thing about that is bernie lost and i don't know if he even participated in the general election in 2016 um i i tried to convince him to still vote regardless because of all the you know ballot initiatives and whatnot if he did vote i i think he probably voted for jill stein but either way like i know these types of people and the reason why nobody's been able to produce a solution no politician has been able to produce a solution that works is because the system itself is able to easily co-opt people in one way or another. So we keep getting the same result, even though there's different politicians and there's still continuity because, I mean, we're not actually getting anyone who's doing the change they say they want. Of you voted for President Obama and then voted for President Trump. Okay, so Marion, explain how you were able to vote for both. I voted for Trump because he was not a politician. You, you get tired of the same old, same old from um, 
Washington, that, and I really wanted someone that would make big changes. President Trump, he said he was going to take care of us and he was going to make sure we had more money in our paychecks Did and, he and help us out because Did he? you go to work, you work hard and you have nothing. And then there's people that don't even work that have more than I do. Has your life okay. economically fine? I want to stop that right there because what she's essentially alluding to is this re residual notion that, you know, dated back to the Reagan era that there are these welfare queens that they don't work, but they live off of welfare and they have these lavish lives. You know, their their fridges are stocked. Meanwhile, you're working nine to five and you're struggling. You're overpaid and, um, you know, over you're under you're overworked and underpaid. I just used that same phrase and I fucked it up already. But regardless, you know, you're you're overworked and underpaid and you feel like, oh, these people who aren't working, they have it all. But what people like this don't realize is that that's not true. That's factually incorrect. People are struggling. The reason why you are working so hard and you really don't see the fruits of your labor is because capitalists decided that they could make more money if they deny you the value produced by your labor. This is capitalism's doing. This is the result of capitalism. They wanted to maximize profits and you know pay their CEOs more. So as a result, that means that you're gonna get less. This is what happens. So it's not, you know, the people who are on welfare or the immigrants who are the reason why you're hurting. It's capitalism. And this is why I really think education is so important because people don't know that the system is designed to make people feel like they are desperate, right? Because that's what's happening. We have income and wealth inequality that is absolutely insane. We just got over the 2008 Great Recession and even though the economy and the stock market has recovered, normal people aren't really seeing the benefits of that gain. So people, they just, they need someone to blame. And rather than blaming the system, they blame their peers because this is what they were told. And um, I just, I don't know how we move beyond that. How do we get past this welfare queen notion, which is completely bogus. People on welfare are absolutely struggling and desperate. I was on welfare at one point and I can tell you, I didn't want to stay on welfare because I didn't want to be extremely fucking poor, right? And living off of food banks. Like whatever I got from uh, food stamps with my family when we were younger, whatever we got from food stamps, it wasn't enough. So we had to go to food banks. So, I mean, it's not like they're living these lavish lives. Like people want to work, most people, because they want to make money. They want to be able to survive and sustain, you know, an income that will actually allow them to buy a house, buy a car. But that's not the economy that we live in anymore. That's that's not the reality. Things have changed because the system is rigged because that's exactly what we can expect from capitalism. But I'm going to go off on, a, on an um, anti-capitalist tangent, so let's go ahead and just get back to the video and I'll shut the fuck up. Actually improved under President Trump. I have, um, I have a lot more in my paycheck. I, I do have more in my paycheck as well. My um, stock portfolio is doing great. <laughs> that too. See, yeah. maybe that's why I look at the economy different. Um, I'm not where a lot of you are financially, I don't think. Uh, I'm pretty darn low income. Uh, my family has received food stamps personally. Um, what do you do for a living? Uh, I, till recently, I worked at a grocery store, um, and now I am running a cafe. Do you think that the economy is doing great? No. I think the economy for the upper middle class has gotten better, and that's great for them. But the economy hasn't gotten better for me. Crystal, you voted in 1992 exactly. for Bill Clinton. You didn't vote again in, in an election until 2016. Is that right? Donald Trump was running. 
And I said, finally, another businessman, and I got fired up. Has he lived up to your expectations? Absolutely. I think he can, he's really? doing just fine. If he says, this is what I'm going to do at this timeline, he does it. Well, he hasn't built the wall. That was one of his I was just going to say that. So, I mean, do you hold that promise against him? No, because isn't the whole wall part of getting the money from Congress, too? And isn't Congress stopping him from getting the money? He said Mexico was going to pay for it. Okay, I feel like this is someone who is probably too far gone. Like, it's very easy to become susceptible to whatever bullshit you hear on Fox News if that's kind of the bubble that you insert yourself in, right? So I'm sure she drank the Kool-Aid, and now she's too far gone. She went from Bill Clinton to Donald Trump. That's quite the shift, but I mean, to be satisfied with Donald Trump, you can't be satisfied with Trump if you know the whole picture. Like, if you know that he is bombing children in other countries. Our bombs are being sold to Saudi Arabia and they're using it on babies. How can you still support him knowing that? Like, when I found out that Obama had increased the drone war that was initiated by George Bush... He lost my support, essentially. And I was late to the party, right? I had cognitive dissonance and I didn't want to realize it. And maybe she's experiencing this. But I mean, if you know everything, you can't unknow that, right? You can't take back that knowledge. You can't put the cat back in its bag. So she doesn't have the full picture if you still support Donald Trump. He cut his own taxes. That's his one major legis legislative achievement. He cut his own taxes. How can you be satisfied with that? I just, I don't get it. Climate change still doesn't even acknowledge that it's a real thing. Um, what little progress we've made under Obama. He's undoing that. And even though the Paris Climate Accord wasn't that substantial, it was something. So I feel like she's probably too far gone, but other people here, probably not as much. I don't know. It just depends. I have to see what they say. Where's the money going to come from? Is he just supposed to print it right there at the White House? Um, well, he did take some Mexico. from the defense budget. I think budget. it's coming from Mexico yeah. was the I, campaign I promise. I believe that's literally a quote. How many of you, <laughs> if the election were held today, show of hands, would vote for President Trump? Oh, that's okay, good. Just one. Okay, one of you would. Lisa Just Marie, one. are you on the fence? I liked him in the beginning when he first came out. He was saying things like it is, um, probably saying things like most of us think but don't want to say. But I'm also thinking he's gotten out of control. That's just him. Okay. I'm, the, I mean, I'm going to stop it's... right here because like, even though I think it was pretty obvious that Donald Trump was a con man, he was a fake populist. Like I'm willing to give these people a pass, even though I think it's really morally reprehensible that they still voted for him in spite of the racism, in spite of the xenophobia, in spite of the warmongering mixed in with some anti-interventionist isolationist things. But I mean, I'll give you a pass. But you don't get a pass if you know now exactly what he's doing and you vote for him again. So this person is the only person on this panel that really seems too far gone. Um, these are people who, to me, seems like they want change. And I really hope that Allison asks a question about um, Bernie Sanders, because if I had to guess, it seems like they would be open to voting for Bernie because these seem like people who are just, they want a change candidate. They want someone who's anti-establishment. Watch him from the 80s on. He's just, I mean, he used to go on the Oprah show and stuff. He's just always been so candid about, I can do that movie star, or I can do this. He's just, well, he's a big, reality he's star. He's just Donald Boom. Trump. You like that he's I like that he's unapologetic. So Boom. in terms of any personal indiscretions, in terms of paying hush money to a porn star, all that stuff, show of hands, how many people are bothered by that? What bothers you? 
he was by the asked, did you, like, again, just like Bill Clinton, pretty much, did you have sex with this woman? Did you bribe, like, pay her off? And he said no. And it came out, he did. And people are like, eh, you know what, it's not a big deal. But he did lie to us. There's no remorse. There's no regret. There's no humility. And I don't vote for personalities. I vote for who's going to get the job done. And why are you on the fence today? Okay. I'm yes. Don't vote for personalities. But corruption isn't something that is uh, related to personality. Like, she was asked, or they were asked, about the hush money payments. Corruption. How can you just excuse that? Like, if you realize that money in politics and corruption is an issue, it's rampant, and he wanted to drain the swamp, but yet he's obviously corrupt, obstruction of justice, the hush money payments, the emoluments clause violations. How can you just, like, overlook that? Like, that has to be a massive caveat, even if you like his policies, right? Like, I don't know that I could support Bernie Sanders if he was that corrupt, but if I did, which I probably wouldn't, I'd still have to say, look, in spite of the corruption... I like the policies, but they're not like they're just kind of sweeping it under the rug. And that's what I don't get about Trump supporters. Like it's a cult, right? It's they, they just don't really care. Eh, I hate corruption, but Trump's corruption, that's OK. Uh, the Democratic Party's corruption, that's bad. But Trump's corruption, eh, it's not really corruption. Here's an explanation X, Y and Z for it. Or also Obama did it. Uh, it just there's no consistency here. And it just the problem with American politics is it is really personality driven. Like people don't necessarily care as much about policy uh, when it's all said and done. You kind of you put policy front and center insofar as, you know, your policy ideals align with the candidate's uh, vision of what they want, what he or she wants for the country. And that's not the way that things should be. You should have a cohesive political ideology and set of policy preferences that you put front and center. And if a candidate deviates from that, then you stop supporting that candidate. That's the way that it should be. And um, policies are something that matter to people, right? Like, I'm not trying to say that people don't care about policy, but politics is more personality driven than I think that I've acknowledged before. And it's really frustrating. That's kind of becoming evident throughout the course of the 2020 Democratic Party primary. But I'll let them go ahead and finish because we're almost done with this. On the fence until I make the decision, I like to wait for the debates. I want to see who is out there. But I mean, there's so many candidates right now. I can't even pretend to know everything about all of them or even most of the things about all of them. Is there any Democrat that speaks to you or that appeals Pete to you? Pete Buttigieg. Oh, kill I like me. Pete, I mean, like, that guy, he's a Harvard graduate. He was in the military. Mm -hmm. He's smart. He's just uh, articulate. He has great ideas. How do you go from Trump to Pete Buttigieg? To Show of hands, how many people like Pete Buttigieg? Marion, is there any Democrat mm -hmm. thus far that has appealed to you or that you think jumps out? Biden right now uh, seems to jump I out. Can't. But, you know, it can change because I uh, think, you know, they keep saying they're going to bring on someone that they haven't announced yet. I'm Who's just, they? <laughs> yeah. The Democratic Party. I didn't hear that. So um, I'm just waiting. But it's gotten to the point where you don't know who to believe anymore. I'm going to be totally honest. Once again, I, I listen to media. I listen to people here, there in restaurants. And, and kind of forming my opinions um, from other people's opinions. No, and don't I do that. I started don't researching and looking and, and yes. looking at different articles and, and going to Hillary Burn. Clinton. I always thought Benghazi... Hillary, that was her deal, the emails and everything. But Come on. once you read enough articles and you She's look at a lot a of good things, point. she really didn't do anything wrong, you know? Um, interestingly enough, I, I was 
actually shocked by that. You Hillary know, sucks. I, this is what oh I heard. God, and this is what I thought. We are in this polarized world right now, where everybody only goes to their own news source that they think that that speaks to them. And I do think a lot of Americans just don't have the time or the energy or the or have the right interest information or interest. It's, mm-hmm. it's think, it could be a full time job a for somebody. I think that's really a, a great point. Okay, so let's lightning round. One word. We'll go around to describe how you see the 2020 race. Do you want to start, Allison? Sure. Polarizing. Confusing. Too much information out there, you're saying? Yes. Intriguing. Trump. <laughs> oh my God, shut up. So I would have to just say um, change. I don't know if I can say it in one word. Um, I really just think it's going to be... Um, Enlightening. That was, um, that was bad. Yeah, I wasn't really expecting much. It seemed like these were change people, and then they go for Buttigieg. Or Biden. Okay. <laughs> people don't know what they want. I don't know what people want. Everything is stupid, and we are living in hell. Like, I get it. People don't have time. People, um, they don't necessarily have the time to go through and research all these candidates and learn about their histories. But Bernie Sanders now, he's been in Congress for 350 years. He has the same, he's been saying the same things. He has a consistent record. I mean, if you're an anti-establishment pro-change candidate, how do you just not like automatically opt for someone like that? Right? I don't know. This was soul crushing. Um, I kind of wish that I didn't watch this because it put me in a bad mood. But regardless, um, yeah, there you have it. Um, white women from swing districts in uh, Pennsylvania. They're either raw, raw Donald Trump or they love Pete Buttigieg um, or Biden. So um, in other words, we are all totally fucked because, yeah, these people will... Uh, they may not necessarily decide the primary, but they're going to be really important in the general. And yes, this is just an anecdote, right? This is six people. But still, I think that these are important because it gives gives us a little bit of insight into the minds of people. And um, yeah, that person has drunk the Trump Kool-Aid, so she's too far gone. And a lot of them like Pete Buttigieg. I mean, who he appeals to, it just, it makes no sense to me. This is someone who is elitist. Like, you, you, you support Donald Trump. I think that person who was, you know, talking about all the things about people to judge that, that she liked, I think that she was a Trump voter. No? Am I am I not remembering uh, that correctly? Let me go back. Two of our pulse of the people. And I for Trump because he... All of you. For Republicans and at times Democrats. All of you. How many of you voted for President Obama and then voted for President Trump? Okay, so Marianne, so she did vote for Trump. You- so you went from Donald Trump to Pete Buttigieg. They are polar opposites. One had this anti-establishment, pseudo-populist appeal because he wasn't an elitist, right? He spoke with you know a third-grade level vocabulary, and now you're going to Pete Buttigieg, who sniffs the smell of his own farts out of a wine glass, who speaks 32 languages. I just. I don't get it. Like, this doesn't make any sense to me. But, um, whatever. It takes a lot of work to grow. You start with a seed. 
and then you show up every day and care for it until you have something more. After a few years teaching kids with special needs, I started working on a farm for people leaving homelessness. I believe we have a responsibility to one another as neighbors. I work alongside folks who used to sleep on a sidewalk or in a creek bed. The work we do together is the work of growing. We grow food and we grow community. We listen to each other, we care for each other, and we stand together in hard times. When we come together, we solve our common problems. We all deserve a good life. How come we don't have it? We're up against people who see no reason for change because this system works for them. We're told that politicians know what's best for us, that they speak for us. But we see who is getting rich while we struggle. They're taking away our homes, our health insurance, and our schools. Y'all, we have so much to fight for. The only way forward is shoulder to shoulder. When the poor and the working class have a voice, we make better decisions for our environment, our schools, our government, and our lives. My name is Heidi That's Sloan. why I'm a democratic socialist. We refuse to accept the greed of the wealthy over our own right to healthcare, shelter, and democracy. We value what each and every one of us brings to the table. We want everyone to live a full and dignified life. I want the good life for all of us. Real free healthcare, childcare, public education that is tuition free, a clear path to citizenship for immigrants, and a justice system that allows us to heal rather than locking us in cages. We will create a Green New Deal that provides millions of union jobs with living wages, ensuring clean water, food security, and decent housing. A single congresswoman can't fix a broken system alone. This is one fight for every one of us. I grew up outside Dallas. We had a little family garden. When we had extra, we'd knock on our neighbor's doors and share with them, because that's what neighbors do. <laughs> My name is Heidi Sloan, and I'm running for Congress to bring you into this fight. Hello, everyone. I'm here with Heidi Sloan, who's challenging a Republican incumbent in Texas's 25th congressional district. She is currently competing in a competitive Democratic Party primary, and she's here to tell you why she is the real deal. Heidi, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me, Mike. I'm really happy to be here. It's really nice to have you on. I, I saw your campaign ad. I absolutely loved it. I saw your platform and it's absolutely immense. It's so robust. And everything that you talk about, it just it spoke to my heart. So let me ask you this. You are a farmer, you're an organizer, and you're someone who is a very human-centric candidate. Like you care about all types of people. And this type of mentality is something that I kind of, uh, it's like a guiding principle for me because this is the humanist report. So, you know, I care about people. I care about what human beings need. Why did you decide to run for Congress? That is a fabulous question, especially with that background. And I think you're exactly right that running for Congress certainly wasn't the first thought I had when I began to develop my own politics. Um, actually, making material change in people's lives was the first thought that I had. I was a public school teacher in a PPCD classroom, which is a classroom for pre-K students of all abilities and, and also um, including children with disabilities. 
uh, for about six years and learned a lot there in that space about what we can do when we have common ground and common purpose. And then I have been working in um, supportive housing for people experiencing chronic homelessness for the last eight years. And what that has taught me is honestly not so different. It is that our human needs are overlapping and that the oppression that we experience is interlocking. But the answer to interlocking oppression is always solidarity that we build together because when we are divided, they, um, they being the capitalist class, the millionaires and the billionaires and those who would use us to make profit, um, they have us on our knees. They have us in a position where we can't even bargain. It is when we stand together that we can address those material conditions. So I like that you bring up capitalism and the effect that it has on people from a really concrete human level. And you can kind of see that reflected in your platform. You are very openly a democratic socialist. I am as well. I think it is the most, you know, um, it's the most logical conclusion and the most logical ideology in terms of just speaking to human need. And the way that you kind of talk about this, there's, there's a portion of your platform that I find really interesting. So you are proposing a four-day work week um, which is also 32 hours. This is what I think more people should talk about because as human beings, we are just machines. Like we're working, we're getting up, going to these nine to five jobs. And most of our lives are dedicated to, you know, a corporation that doesn't serve us. We're working longer hours for lower wages. So talk about why you think this is important and why we should just have more time to be human beings and to be free. Amazing. Yeah, it, it brings me back to what I've been reading about in the last couple of weeks uh, that Trump is touting how low the unemployment rate is right now. And when you look at it, the unemployment rate is actually quite low. Um, the, the number of people with jobs is high, but the wages are not increasing um, with the cost of living for most people in this country. And so what I see in that is the continuance of this race to the bottom of making people work longer and longer hours despite increasing technology that should actually be liberating us more and more from um, not just having one job that costs us 40 hours of our week, but for many people having two or three jobs um, that that when we look at the impact of that amount of work and that continual hustle on individuals and on families, we see the de deterioration of our community. We don't have the time to spend with an one another to do things like build and grow relationships, let alone the time to organize. And the the creation of the, the permanent underclass and workers who are um, not necessarily in that class, but constantly stuck just trying to make ends meet is a political creation to take away our power. It is certainly has material effects, but it also takes the time that we would spend, the energy that we would spend getting to know and care for one another away from us and puts us back depending on working more and more um, for smaller and smaller or less kept houses for um, transit that is uh, worse and worse and, and car rides that are longer and longer to get to jobs that don't pay us for that time, of course. Yeah, and you explained this so beautifully because like the way that I think about this is we are on this planet for, what, 80 years if we're lucky, 
And most of that time is spent doing something that we hate, going to a job where there's this abusive, you know, employer-employee relationship where we are subordinate to a boss who doesn't care about us, you know, in a system that isn't really looking out for our interest. It's just about producing capital and capital and capital and more money. But I think that it's important that we really do talk more about this because most people in this country, they're, they don't even realize, like, they just kind of go on autopilot. I was in the same way, where I was working a job that I hated. I was on salary, so I would work, like, an additional 10 to 15 hours per week and wouldn't get the extra pay for that, you know? So this situation is exploitative, and we have to change it because as human beings, we can have a better system than capitalism. We can have a system that actually speaks to human need and allows us to flourish and live lives that aren't just horrible, where, you know, we're dreading, you know, Monday when it's Sunday, you know, and, and dreading, you know, uh, going back to work after we finally get a vacation, if we're even able to take a vacation. So I like that your campaign, it really focuses on human need. You talk about, you know, um, your advocacy for the homeless. And I want you to kind of talk about your uh, organizing skills there and your activism there, because what I like is that people who talk about homelessness, they're doing something that others aren't doing. Like this is a true public service because people who are homeless, they don't actually, they don't have permanent residences. So politicians tend to just forget about them because you can't send them campaign mailers. So they're kind of this forgotten constituency that nobody cares about. Um, so talk a little bit about what you did to help the homeless. Absolutely. Um, as I said, I've been working alongside people who have experienced chronic homelessness for the last eight years, and that has taught me so much about um, the issue of homelessness, not just being an issue of affordable housing, though, of course, that is really, really important, but the issue of, of being a person who does not fit into the system of, of colonialism, of always is expanding, of always having more, of always being driven to pursue the next opportunity for power or for money. Folks who are completely cut out of that are disregarded when it comes to basic human necessities like healthcare, when it comes to education, when it comes to um, civil rights. And that honestly is the, the fight that we've been picking here in Austin lately. About two years ago, we began working uh, to repeal ordinances that criminalize the very behaviors associated with homelessness, things that people can't even help, like sleeping outside when you don't have anywhere else to sleep. Um, and asking for money, which is the only mechanism that people experiencing homelessness oftentimes have access to, to be able to feed themselves, to be able to clothe themselves, to be able to find shelter on occasion. So we picked this fight and and organized to repeal these, these ordinances that were actually driving people into the woods away from supportive services and having the police follow them from campsite to campsite, from corner to corner, um, which is... I don't like this argument. It's a waste of taxpayer dollars. <laughs> but more than that, it uh, connects people experiencing homelessness to the carceral system in extremely detrimental ways. I have personally experienced um, or been alongside of a friend who was experiencing being kicked out of housing because of a warrant for tickets for sleeping outside previously. And so we went after it and we um, organized long and hard and intersectionally around this issue. And eventually in June, Austin City Council, um, after much debate, voted to not completely repeal, but, but very much change these ordinances. And the backlash of saying that people should not be ticketed because they have to live outside has been tremendous. 
And it has been such a growth opportunity for our organizing team here in Austin to know what it is like for folks who have housing, who maybe are paying for a mortgage and hoping that the value of their housing is increasing to punch down in really strong ways and to carry our um, our answer to the hegemonic narrative that it is the fault of the person who has less resources than you, that you feel scarce in your resources. And to turn that on its head and say, actually, who is it that makes you feel afraid that the value of your housing is going to go down, that the value of your neighborhood, rather than against our neighbors experiencing homelessness? You've pretty much uh, convinced me that you are, you know, you're the real deal. And there's a difference between, you know, the reformers and the revolutionaries really changing the way that people think that's part of it. You know, we need a bottom up approach. And you're really, you know, you're on the ground, you're organizing, you're fighting for people's rights. So I kind of want you to talk through the dynamics of your race, because this is a competitive primary, and you're going up against the Republican incumbent in the event you win. His name is Roger Williams. So talk about what the Democratic Party primary is like, and the Republican um, who's been in office since, I believe, 2013, I want to say. Um, talk about what your chances would be in this particular district against him. Yeah, I will. I would love to talk about both of those things. First, the the primary is, as you say, quite a, a competitive primary. I'm running against the person who ran in this primary last time and went to the general last time, a person who honestly follows um, our policy as it is published um, and seems to be on for the ride here. The difference there is that we are here to root out the oppressive systems of capitalism everywhere we find them and to generate um, power with and for the people. That if we are not putting democratic control in the hands of the working class and the poor, then we will end up with the same system that we have always had. And I think, honestly, that's where organizing really comes in, is that our theory of change, it revolves around this notion that we cannot elect someone to do this work for us. We have to be building these institutions from the ground up, on the way, and once we are in office. When we talk about housing, we talk about things that I'm not sure anyone else in, in Texas is talking about right now, but things like rent control and repealing the fair cloth amendment so we can actually build public housing where the market refuses to help. And I know that that's going to be a fight. I was, you know, Julia Salazar in New York has this fight on her hands right now. And we were talking the other day and I said, Julia, it is the people standing with us that is going to get this done, right? And she said, yes, that is what gets this done every day for me. This is the only way we move forward is that I call my organizer friends and I was like, and they show up and they show up every day because it is their lives on the line. And to run a campaign from a space where it is an individual coming forward and saying the right words and having the right policy. I mean, even with well-meaning, well-intentioned uh, figureheads, we know that once those folks are in office, there will be so much against them. It, it will be the industries, it will be the Republican Party, and honestly, it will be the Democratic Party as well. The Democratic Party has told their um, electeds that they are not for Medicare for all. And I have personally seen electeds have to follow that line until we gave them a reason to do otherwise. And that reason is always the people who are experiencing life um, every day in the struggle of not having basic human needs like health care met. Roger Williams 
is a much more straightforward ta target than our, our primi primary opponent, Julie Oliver. Roger Williams is the millionaire um, Republican who owns used car dealerships that he inherited from his father. He never comes to the district unless it's for closed door fundraisers. And I got receipts, man. Uh, he is Wells Fargo. He is Goldman Sachs. He is developers and mortgage insurance companies. That is his entire list of supporters. And we know that we can go out into this district, which includes Austin, but also includes a substantial amount of rural areas. And we can say to folks, why are your hospitals closing? Why are your schools falling apart? Why don't your wages keep pace with your cost of living, even as your, co your quality of life is going down? And when they aren't sure of the answer, we can point to the people who are backing Roger Williams and using him as a puppet to get done what um, industry and what billionaires and what the owning class wants to get done every day. That is a message that resonates um, because we are here to be class conscious. Uh, it resonates across the working class in District 25. Yeah, and you kind of alluded to this, but I wanted to get your take on um, what you would do to fight within the existing oppressive structures, because as someone who is a democratic socialist who, you know, criticizes capitalism very directly, which I love, by the way, um, there's going to be an attempt, you know, from your own party to marginalize you. So how do you fight back against that and actually affect change from within? This is my favorite question. Um, and it took us a little while, to be honest, to actually put words to how we are going to accomplish this. We know our allies. We know their names because we organize with them for every fight. They are the worker centers. They are our unions. They are our public school teachers. They are all of these groups who are our grassroots team here in Texas. But how do you institutionalize that relationship? How do you build that power and bring it with you to Congress? This was the big question for us. And then we started looking at leaders who we admire, who we want to model ourselves after and seeing what they do, what they have in common, and whether it is my council member, Greg Kassar, that I do a ton of work with here in Austin, whether it is Julia Salazar, whether it is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Bernie Sanders, over and over again, what we see is that they are able to build those relationships and have one boot in office and one on the ground. So we're working on actual policy right now um, that it's, it is our organizing platform. It says that we are committed to double union density in this district from office, that we will come out and support every union drive. We will be there on the picket lines with our union members, um, that we will uh, institutionalize our coalition work around issues that are super important to people in our district. So when we are here fighting for a Green New Deal, we commit ourselves from day one to naming specific people specific organizations and coalition members who will be at that table writing that policy with us because we know if they're going to write it with us, they're going to fight with us for it. And we know that I, as much as I really want a Green New Deal and see it as critical to our survival, frontline communities are 
as dedicated as anyone could possibly be to those kinds of just transitions in our economic culture and to neglect to, to create the space for them to have a voice and to have actual power is to neglect the opportunity to actually accomplish what, what we want once we get into office. So we are beginning to articulate that um, in writing right now and to offer that to the people who rightfully have a lot of mistrust for um, for electoral politics generally, which is, is me, um, yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> and coming to them and saying, we need you to go with us now yeah. and, and when we're there. And I like the way that I'm kind of visualizing politics, and you can kind of add to this, is I'm really seeing what I think is a paradigm shift where we're not just electing people, we are electing many movements, you know, throughout the country. And we kind of see this with Shama Sawan in Seattle. She isn't just one person, like she occupies, you know, the seat for District 3. But whenever she wants something accomplished, she organizes. Like that's how she's so effective. And that's essentially what we are going to see with Bernie Sanders if he's elected. He's talked about being the organizer in chief. And so what you're really proposing here is the congressional equivalent to that organizer in chief, you know, model where you're not just electing me, Heidi Sloan, you're electing me and the, you know, the people, the organizations, the labor movement that are behind me because this isn't just about one person like what we're realizing and I think a little bit you know this is this is something that's always been obvious but it's really crystallized since you know the 2016 and you know 2020 Democratic Party primary is that real change is not going to come from the top down it's not going to come by just electing someone who's going to represent the people we need a bottom-up approach because organizing Organizing is the only way that we can truly affect change. So this is a really, really big question, and you can't possibly touch on everything because your platform is so huge. But talk a little bit about your platform and really what are some of the biggest priorities for you? And I'll put a little bit of B-roll over the screen so people can see how gigantic your platform really is because it's just it's so impressive. Um, but what to you um, would be some of your top priorities if you are elected? And I will say that our platform is continuing to grow as we continue to meet with the leaders in our community and get their input and have a dialogue around the change that they are working to build. For me, I cut my teeth on organizing for Medicare for All. It is near and dear to my heart as something that affects my family every single day, um, loved ones who don't have access to the care that they need. and. Um, Honestly, taking care of the bodies of the poor and the working class and guaranteeing that as a human right, not tied to our employment status or conditions, means that we are stronger to stand up and to fight for even more. Medicare for All also happens to be under the giant and beautiful umbrella of a Green New Deal. Um, I think it is brilliant that we have uh, scientific backup to say that actually if we want to combat climate crisis, we have to institute climate justice. And that includes a federal jobs guarantee program that centers workers, their right to organize, their right to fair wages, their right to be recognized for the kind of care work that we have already been doing and must continue to do and be recognized for if we are going to have a, a world that works for all of us. Um, and then I would say, also within that big umbrella of the Green New Deal, we talk a whole lot in my community about the right to housing as a human right, as something that should not depend on our ability to pay in an ever-increasing um, cost 
to us when when folks who are inflating that cost are just here to to make a profit, to gamble and speculate on the places that keep us and our families safe, that we have to mitigate that by um, holding the market to a human standard, first of all, by rent control. And then, as I said, with public, the institution of public housing being refunded. I mean, we look at communities and we say, where are, where are people falling through the cracks? And it could be that individuals are falling through the cracks because of discrimination on their gender, on their sexual orientation, on their race. Um, but to combat that division and that um, that um, that harm that is being done, we have to create universal policies that are strong enough to hold all of us. And so we look for those who are falling deepest through the cracks, and then we look at the cracks, and we make sure that we're shoring them up in every way that we possibly can to give the whole lot of us um, ground to stand on that is sturdier and ground that doesn't say, if you just push someone else through the cracks, then you're going to be okay. That actually says, when you work to build a better world, it better be for all of us or tomorrow, you know you know, um, we may find ourselves the ones falling through the cracks this time, as we see, um, especially under the Trump administration, but certainly not limited to this time frame, targeting people based on their race or their immigration status or their income level. Um, these are the, the rhetorical devices that are used to keep us all done, down and never negotiating for the entirety of, of the human condition. Very well said. Um, so I think that anyone who's watching to this point, they're going to be convinced and they're going to want to support you. So tell us what we do to support your campaign. Thanks. Um, I have to be an organizer first and say we're building a movement here. And so if you um, would be kind enough to look at our platform, we always accept feedback and we always want to connect with people across the country and across the world who are doing this work and the places where they live. We want to know you. We want to build with you. Um, so please reach out. But secondly, uh, while we do know that we have the people power to get this done, our volunteers who are incredible and so dedicated it is November and we canvass four times a week and we draw a crowd every time. Um, we have huge parties where we get to know one another and then the next day we're organizing together. Um, we have to have literature. We have to have water bottles. We have to have clipboards. We have to pay our people well who are working on this campaign if we are who we say we are. And we need your help with that. Um, unfortunately, elections still cost money in this country. And while they do, um, that money is always going to come from individuals. It's never going to come from corporations because, first of all, we're not their target. Their, their, candidate. Um, they know better than to try. And secondly, it is absolutely unethical to take corporate money. Um, so if this is going to happen, and we know that it can, it's going to be because people across this country have decided that they think it should. Yeah. And let me just add my pitch for Heidi. Um, what I like to uh, get people thinking about is the way that we contribute to campaigns, these grassroots donations, these are kind of mini investments, right? You're putting in something that will pay off because even though Heidi will be representing the 25th Congressional District of Texas, what she does will, you know, that 
potentially can affect you as well. Passing Medicare for all, being a vote on the Green New Deal, these are all things that are incredibly crucial, not just to that district, but everywhere, you know, to you as well. So even if you could just chip in a dollar, five bucks, this is something that is, you know, a down payment for a real revolution in this country that is going to actually uplift human beings. And Heidi clearly understands that. And I love that you have such a human-centric campaign. I've already talked about this, but this is the human support. So it's like, if, if you bring that up, I have to say, you know, I, I have to credit you for it. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate that. And it's absolutely true. I Every time I get a dollar or a $3 or $5 or $27 donation, it makes our day, it makes us keep going, it makes us believe in ourselves and what we're doing and that we are on the right track. So I really appreciate that. Well, yeah, keep up the good work. The website is HeidiSloan.com. On Twitter, you can find Heidi, Heidi Sloan for TX. Um, I'll have that all on the screen in the lower thirds as well. Thank you so much um, for coming on the program, Heidi. It's been a pleasure. I'm incredibly excited and we will be watching very closely. Thanks, Mike. We'll talk soon. Well, that's it. I don't have anything left to say. Hopefully you guys enjoyed the program. If you've watched this far, special thanks to my guest this week, Heidi Sloan. And as usual, before we leave, I want to thank all of our Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members for helping the show to not just survive, but thrive as well. Again, if you want to support the show, you can do so by going to humanistreport.com support, patreon.com humanistreport, or by clicking join underneath any one of our YouTube videos. Thank you all so much. It's been a blast as usual. I will see you next week. Take care. My name is Mike Figueredo. This is the Humanist Report. Bye.